0: morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to viewing audiences across the pond. I'm Jason Miles, your host for another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, please like, subscribe. If you're enjoying what you see, make sure to hit the notification bell, as we're constantly adding new episodes and doing cross streams with other channels and adding shows this past Wednesday, we had the monthly Mao Mao Hour with Pascal Robert, where we examined Taiwo's Elite Capture Theory. It's now up for everyone to see. Uh, and as we stream that uh, for patrons only, uh, first, and we open up phone lines. If you'd like to be a part of that, there's only one way. Become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. You can access all the champagne rooms past and present and be a part of our movie night and call-in segments. Now, if you don't want to make the monthly or yearly commitment, you can show your appreciation for what we do here with TIR Merchandise. Usually, this is where I would go to MT to do her oh-so-funny East Coast merch pitch. But MT, right now, is missing in action. I think she's Ferris bueller hanging out at home, playing hooky, so send a shout out to MT, hope she gets well soon so we can have her back on the show, as I do not like doing the merch pitch because I'm not as entertaining. That being said, let's bring in the Saturday crew, he is my homie, my Co-host my dog, he is the man of the Mau Mau Hour. He is the Pascal Roger.
1: Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. What's up, man? How are you?
0: We got metal in the back. We got music in the back. Yeah, this is the this is the new album or the latest. Latest EP from Bitter Lake. Bitter Lake, yeah. Rock on, dude. Because people said the episode was so black the other day.
1: I know all your home, all your all your all your heavy music guys were like, Jason, what the hell is wrong with you playing Jodeci on This Is Revolution, man? You're totally (laughs) wrecking our vibe, dude.
0: Speaking of what MT calls black excellence. Uh, Coming all the way live from a bunker somewhere in Provo. Please welcome. Put this down so I don't spill it. See Derek Vaughn.
1: See Derek Vaughn. Morning. Yeah. Bunker
2: in Provo, huh? Like, (laughs) that, I mean. Get off my land. Um, yeah, yeah. Salt Lake is such an interesting uh, area to live in because there really is sort of like this bifurcation politically over Mm -hmm. Provo versus SLC. Um, Some a lot of it's uh, whether or not you're a woke or anti-woke Mormon. Um, And then SLC is a lot more brown than Provo a lot more brown than Provo. Um word? Yeah. 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 We're about a third uh Latin and Polynesian and Provo's like, I feel very dark there. Let's <laughs> put it that way.
1: Well, you know, we do call you the disco mulatto for a reason there, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Words I can't use. All right. Um <laughs>
0: listen to black voices and we just bring Derek Varn out
1: (laughs) Varn will be featured throughout Black History Month
0: (laughs) oh that's another thing that would probably give me a lot of trouble if I had a picture of Varn and it just said Black History Month like the (laughs) McDonald's ads (laughs) it was just (laughs) Varn Or, or you, you have Varn's face as Muhammad Ali knocking out Sean King as, as a sunny listener. <laughs> there can be only one.
1: What do they say about China? It's like socialism with Chinese tendencies. So, Varn is like black with like southern white Jewish tendencies. <laughs> southern white Jewish <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> oh God. I tell you, boy, you're never gonna live down the fact that you actually have been to Freaknik in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um when you were that's
0: talking it. about those sundown towns, Derek, there mm-hmm. was uh, one year uh when I was on tour with my ex, we were in we were in North Carolina at a truck stop and we met this dude this truck driver at a truck stop he was just he just looked at us and he was like like what are y'all doing here <laughs> and he ended up being from some fucked off city in in uh georgia and so mm. we were playing a play you know where Carrollton is yeah i know
2: where Carrollton is what? <laughs> we played the
0: i think it's called the black cat or some shit like that in Carrollton, and um the dude had i think he either lived in Carrollton or like adjacent to it and there's a city near Carrollton called either Whitesville or Whitesburg.
2: I think it's Whitesburg, but.
0: Okay, we, we there was a bunch of antique shops and we got out because we were like, our first thought was like, oh, let's just go check out some antique shops. We got time. So we pull over and we're just walking, looking at these antique shops and people were literally coming out of the shops and like pointing, right? And we're like, this is so weird. What? I wonder where we are, because we didn't see the city sign. And it said, Whitesburg. And we were like, oh, shit. Like, maybe we should just get the fuck out of here, right? Because it was weird, man. And uh, like, I don't know if you've ever been anywhere, Pascal, where people literally come out of buildings and they point and they look at you like, oh, look, it's that. So we're like, let's get the fuck out of here. And we're, we're trying to be calm about it and not just have a, frightened run to the car and we're trying to walk fast. And all of a sudden we hear this dude yell from a car window. There they go right there. Oh boy. And I was like, Cindy run. And then the car (laughs) pulls in front of us. And it's that white dude that we had met like a week prior in North Carolina. And he was in the car with his buddy. And he was like, I told you I met a band. I told you I met a band. There they go right there.
2: <laughs> True stories. You know, Whitesburg, is, Whitesburg is pretty rural. So, but yeah, I with you places, you're actually in a lot more dangers around Cummings, Georgia, which is up in the rich yes. part uh, beyond. Beyond the mountains, uh well, right below the mountains, actually. But um and while Cummings now does have a black mayor, like as I was telling Pascal, there's a certain class of people that they will let live in there now. It's um and they're always fighting, including some of the a lot of the people call there, uh running viable transit down to South Atlanta because that's where all the black poor and the and Latin poor are. And so, and what's interesting about that um, is Cummings is one of those areas now that that's like Biden voters, they supported war, you know, they're, they're part of the Warnock thing. I believe if I'm thinking about how the sen- uh, senatorial lines are drawn. no, oh, No, they are for sure. Cause it's not drawn by geography. Um, but they they tend to be they tend to support Democrats nationally, mm-hmm. they support Republicans locally, and it's all about money. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is interesting because it did start as white flight, and Cummings used to be like, "You did not go there if you were black." Like it, into my lifetime, like like into the mid eighties. Um. So yeah, that yeah, the South is fun. Um, I, <laughs> like, I, there, there's we
0: it was that year that we stopped using navigation to Mm. get to to venues because navigation has you take uh highways and Mm. highways were built to go through towns right the interstate is constructed to go over towns around towns you're never going to go through a town so we were just we we bought a map i'll never forget that after that we were like never again because we would always end up at two o'clock in the morning needing to get gas in some extremely frightening place where the record stops when you walk in, and there's all these pictures of Obama with bullets in his head and shit. And uh, you walk in, and they're like, Not even can I help you, just like,
1: Hmm,
0: hey, what boy. You yeah, what you know, are you
1: doing? You no know way, you at over here.
0: I'm like, oh Wyoming. They're like, <laughs> So, yeah, we started we started using uh, maps and just taking in, even if it took you a little longer to you know, take an interstate, it's way safer. You're going to find an actual truck stop. But, yeah, yeah, I uh, that was one of the scarier times I've ever had because I've never had people come out of buildings and point like that's them right
2: there. Not to get our culture as class on people because I don't believe in that, but I do sometimes judge people by whether or not they have a favorite truck stop because if they don't have a favorite truck stop, they travel by plane.
0: Yeah. (laughs) The truck spot is, is is in Davenport, Iowa, the biggest truck stop in America. Mm, yeah, really, <laughs> yeah, it's like halfway through the state on the 80. Yeah. Oh, that thing's like a <laughs> mall, it's like, and
2: <laughs> <television. laughs> <laughs> when you said it, I'm like, Oh, I've been there because we used to drive back and forth between the west and the south. And yeah,
1: you,
0: yeah, you have to. You, if you're taking the 80, you, have you to gotta go
2: back. 80. Yeah. Uh, no, when you start
0: going to truck stops and people know you, like we, we were touring that much, like, Oh, it's them. <laughs> That's bad.
2: Yeah. Oh, people are bringing up South of the Border and, and, and South Carolina. We, south of ooh. the Border. So, Pascal, there's a place. I forget
0: the <laughs> I've, history I've been of You've <laughs> been to too. South of the
2: Border? Yeah. We stopped
0: one year. I think it was the last year we toured, sadly. And we did. There, there's pictures of it. But we always would go through this place playing South Carolina. And I was like, let's get out one day and see what the hell this place is. And it's just this the most over the top offensive place I've ever been.
2: It's like built in the forties or something. I yeah. mean like it's and yeah, it it's it's uh it's something else. Well, <laughs>
0: it's just caricatures of Mexican people. <laughs> but it's in was it South Carolina and Georgia, right?
2: South of the border is, uh, no, South Carolina, North Carolina. No, okay.
0: And somewhere where I'm like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> if, if there's no hometown buffet and you got a western sizzling, then I know I'm in the real south.
1: Uh, yeah. I read something somewhere about how they were talking about closing south of the border or something like that. I don't know I will recently or changing it, something to that effect. I've been there twice. I remember one time when I was a kid. <laughs> For some reason, my father wanted to take a tour of the South, and we drove from New York to Georgia and the Carolinas, Carol- Carolinas, to visit slave plantations. I, I don't know what that was, that was. My father had to. See. I think was, he had seen. And, n- and
0: none same. of your families had any relation to it.
1: <laughs> it <laughs> my, my, my dad, his, you know, my father was very like pro-black, kind of black nationalist type. He I think the year before Roots was on TV and he was like, no, we must go to the south. And whatever. We went, we took a family vacation and we went, we drove to like the south. And coming back, we went to south of the border. And uh, I remember, and this another time I had to drive from Miami to Toronto with a friend of mine over some business. And we stopped at the south of the border. And I was like, this place is still as tacky as it was when I was a kid. Oh my God, it has not changed oh, yeah. at
0: all. Nothing, nothing's changed. Yeah, I think no. there's pictures of me trying to ride the dinosaur, and you know they are the dinosaurs. Like nothing makes sense there. There's like dinosaurs, and these massive caricatures of Mexican people. That's just offensive as shit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I mean, there are places that like it out west, but they don't have the racist caricature part of it. They're they're like places called like Real America and stuff like that, but it's not Real America or Little America. Little America. That's what it
1: is.
2: (laughs) Like when you're driving through Wyoming, right? It's like the only fucking thing. There's two. There's one in Wyoming and there's one somewhere
0: in the... Whoever's watching this, tell us. they're, They're near a continental divide. So there's a continental divide in Wyoming and there's another one in massachusetts
2: somewhere mm. but
0: yeah little america is like the funniest it's another truck stop that you know
2: it's like a mall it's yeah. a truck stop mall i mean it's a truck stop tourist destination and w- and it's it's very similar to south of the border except it mm-hmm. doesn't have any of the obvious racial shit
0: Mm-mm. no so- <laughs> no i have so much jordan was making fun of me because she goes you have sleep beanies and you have go out in public beanies (laughs) i was like yeah i get these at all these truck stops because it's it's so damn cold
2: yeah oh yeah when you live out here i I like have 20 beanies and people are like why i'm like you you forget one one day and you got it. you your ears are frozen you don't have a choice they're three bucks i just collect them now Uh, uh, yes
0: i have way too many and there's another truck stop secret is it um There's one truck stop that has like an iron skillet, I think is the restaurant in it. And that restaurant has a rule. And I don't know if you know this, Pascal, is everything on the menu is all you can eat. (laughs) So if you eat in your entree, you can get another entree. (laughs) I like it. Which you think you like it until you're like, wait a minute. You just gave me a massive plate of like chicken fried steak and all kinds of gravies and starches and i can eat it again i probably shouldn't
1: yeah that doesn't sound healthy
0: it's not it is not healthy but finding that tip out is extremely important when you're trying to tour on a budget yeah but i can't remember the name of it it's not a so there's loves what's the other one there's loves
2: there's loves there's maverick there's sap brothers there's flying jay flying j it's the flying
0: yeah. j's that have those yeah. right yeah i think it's the flying j's that have those. i have cards somewhere for all those places discount cards and shit
2: uh, the, i sometimes want when to whenever we have european guests on shows i i, I want to like tell them when they talk about america and i'm like have you have you done the truck stop tours because you want to understand our country that's really what you have to do <laughs> like but <Yeah. laughs>
0: <laughs> and ask him, who's really eating at those truck stop Arby's? That's a good question. Oh,
2: however, there's some places in the South where the truck stop Arby's is literally like the only fast food restaurant in the town.
0: Oh, so, nightmare.
2: <laughs> I,
0: I will not eat at Arby's.
2: Truck stop Arby's. Arby's up, man. Truck stop Taco Bell's. Truck stop Burger King's.
0: Yes. I'll fuck <laughs> with all those. Def- a truck stop McDonald's. What, what I, when you do, when you do these shit for so long, you start telling yourself stuff like, I'm only gonna pull over if I see a Popeyes truck stop.
2: <laughs> <laughs> see, yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so, you know, Popeyes, Popeyes truck stops are usually an indication of good food, but it, my favorite chicken place is a place that, like, I advise people not to go. And that's churches. Because <laughs> churches is, You know really? what I'm referring to. It is always in, like, the you most dangerous parts churches. of town.
1: <laughs> you, <laughs> just <lost laughs> your, you just lost your black card, Varn. Black folk don't eat their churches.
0: You can't... But, that, but, Pascal, you know what's so funny? I know you remember back in the day... And I don't know if this hits your neighborhood, Varn. They were like, you can't eat at churches because they got shit in the chicken that makes black people impotent. Like just black people, like some sort of like me. No, I remember all the of about,
2: about how like churches were out to get black people, and I sometimes think they were, they were true. <laughs> I get why because you only ever saw them and and like basically you would hit MLK Boulevard in the South, and you know the MLK Boulevard's always like the poorest boulevard in the city. Yeah. Um. And and as soon as you started hitting to where uh there are houses made of cinder blocks you're gonna find a churches like like that was always true well and i have no idea why it was always true but yeah
0: someone says churches is ghetto but you're not getting a 24 piece for ten (laughs) dollars (laughs) anywhere
1: Facts, facts. Like you can't even dispute that,
0: right there. Like that is (laughs) churches is like, is this really a chicken? Because I don't see no pigeons around here. Because I don't.
1: Back back in, I think they still have it though. Back in the day, there was a spot in New York when I was growing up. They still have it, though Bojangles. They still have Bojangles. Bojangles yes. Oh
2: yeah, there's one. There is one in Utah, which is just, just. I'm like, ooh.
1: <laughs> they so have this, pretty good chickens. Right? So so Pascal, do.
0: I don't think they have this where you're at. It's only a Midwest thing. When I went to North Dakota, these guys would talk about going into town and going to Taco John's. Taco I was John's like, is great. <laughs> I was like Taco Juan and like no Taco John. I'm like I ain't go. I don't trust a motherfucker named John making tacos. <laughs> Fuck you, Yankee ass tacos. Yeah, dude, Taco Johns. I do not fuck with Taco Johns. That's some Yankee bullshit, as the Southerners say.
2: I mean, it's it's Wyoming bullshit in specific, I believe. Um, Taco Johns. Yeah, I think Taco Johns came out of Wyoming. I know Um, they
0: have Minnesota and the Dakotas, and
2: yeah,
0: any place you're not going to find Juan. Yeah, <laughs> anywhere where Juan isn't, you will find a Taco John.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, it, it there's there's a weird war between what I like to call white tacos and non-white tacos here. So see, so tacos,
1: tacos without flavor, uh, yeah. you know,
2: tacos with
0: raisins in it.
2: Yeah, no tacos, tacos that are based off of the Taco Bell model versus taco versus taco shops that are run by by Mexicans and El Salvadorians. And so like if you're on the east side of town, um, you can get like bougie tacos, which is a weird thing to think about. But it definitely does. exist. like this place. It does like we do street tacos with duck confit for real. (laughs) <laughs> um, and then there, then there is Taco Bell, Taco Time, Taco John's and, uh, and, uh, Del Taco, um, Del Taco being the superior of those four. And then on my side of town, everything is like Alberto's Betos, that street truck down the street, yeah. make sure you get the tongue on the right day. Cause on the wrong day, it's not, you know, might be bad for you. Um, <laughs> and people come over here and they're like, there's no, there's no Taco, Taco Bell on this side of town. And I'm like, why the fuck would anyone on this side of town eat Taco Bell? Like we can, there's 50, there's literally like 50 taco trucks on my street. Just go get some actual tacos. But that's the dividing line. And if you live on the East side, of, um on East bench in Salt Lake, they're often telling me like, there's no good Mexican food here. And I'm like, do you ever go to the west side because it's full of Mexicans? <laughs> but you have to order in Spanish. So you
0: know. And a lot of people don't like that. And Taco <laughs> Bell, there's something about it. I remember me and my son's mom once a, once every other month, she'd look at me and she'd be like, Taco Bell sounds hella good right now. And we'd be like, Yeah, and it'd be late. And the it was when Phoenix was really small. And uh like yeah, that sounds like a great idea, and I don't even smoke pot. Like neither does she, and uh, we'd get Taco Bell and just really,
1: yeah,
0: feel like this. I, would
1: had be a, I had a buddy of mine when I was in law school who was from the Bay. I mean, I had had Taco Bell, but Taco Bell doesn't have the same resonance on yeah. the East Coast that has in California. And this dude was like always fiending Taco Bell. I was like, yo, what is it with these Cali dudes and this Taco Bell shit, man? It's like these these cats are forever like craving taco bell i mean i don't i don't hate taco bell but i was like yo this dude was like fiend he was going after taco bell like dudes from louisiana go after popeyes
0: (laughs) just capping hard for that shit somebody say watery ass meat (laughs) you know what stopped me liking all that shit now is living out here you got to pass so many dope spots to get to any chain like US chain yeah. that uh you're kind of an asshole if you go if you pass a million places that are cheaper to go to a US chain.
1: Cheaper and more better food almost always. Oh yeah.
0: Oh god, yeah. Yeah.
1: I can imagine you guys like you have what we consider gourmet Mexican food like
0: me, yeah, me and Ben went out last night and we uh, we were looking for this one place in particular and uh, it happened to be closed and we had so many options we didn't know what to do because it was kind of a slow Friday downtown, which is a beautiful thing.
1: <laughs> uh, Andy Williams says Cal- California cats like racially ambiguous women in Taco Bell. <laughs> True facts. 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 <laughs> Facts.
0: You leave my Lisa Bonet fantasy alone.
1: Facts. <laughs> you know, I found out that her
0: father lived by me and I had no idea. Like years her. later. Yeah. I was so heartbroken. Is she biracial
1: with dad black, mom white, or so. mom white, dad black? First way. Okay.
0: I definitely would have camped out in front of that house had I known that. (laughs) Like a weird eight-year-old stalker. But enough about my sexual perversions. (laughs) I'm sure everyone on the panel and many of you watching probably saw the horrifically agonizing state torture death of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. These public snuff films start to become so common that you can forget names, but the brutality we see is a constant stain in our psyche. Viewing these acts of state violence can be a reminder of how powerless we are in these seemingly banal situations and how quickly an inconvenience can turn into tragedy. Will these protests simply be catharsis for beleaguered people? Before we get into our discussion on labor, I just wanted to get your guys' feeling on the newly released footage and what's happening now in Memphis and also in uh, Georgia and its relation with our recent show topics. And we'll start off with uh, Pascal Robert.
1: Well, uh, I intentionally, as I told you earlier, Jason, chose not to watch the video, but I have been reading up on the story. And uh, one of the things that I know about Memphis is that they have a very rigorous black political class. The police chief is a black woman. The cops were all black and uh, it, I was able to fall upon a quote from a book by James Baldwin called The Evidence of Things Not Seen. And this is a quote. Black policemen were another matter. We used to say if you just call if you just call a policeman for we hardly ever did, for God's sake, try to make it make sure it's a white one. A black policeman could completely demolish you. He knew far more about you than a white policeman could. And you were without defenses before this black brother in uniform whose entire reason for breathing seemed to be his hope to offer proof that though he was black, he was not black like you. And that was written in the 1980s. And I think that what's really fascinating for me about this is that it reminds me of the book by James Forman Jr. Uh, um,
0: Locking up our own.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Locking Up Our Own. Let's talk about that book we, all the time. He talks about how the whole criminal justice apparatus in the black political class in DC was facilitating some of the worst horrors of mass incarceration in like the 80s and the 90s during the height of the crack era. And what this reminds me of is that how the role of the black political class throughout the country. Is reduced to being the administrative mechanisms of Black misery and Black suffering at the behest of capital. And that the illusion that there's any type of racially unified, uh, you know, Black unified collective front against this, you know, <laughs> ontological phenomenon called white supremacy is really kind of ridiculous when you understand that the supermajority of Black people who have any kind of functioning in this society, whether they be pedigreed professional managerial class Black people or Black people who work at, you know, vocations like police or firemen are doing so to keep this system functioning within the status quo. And what that means is that that means that they're going to be people who are going to be poor. They're going to be people who are going to be suffering misery. And as capital contracts itself through its various manifestations of neoliberalism, that means that the precarity or the suffering increases. And there's gonna be a lot of black and brown folk at the bottom of that or close to the bottom, Native Americans and poor whites as well. But what is interesting is that the elites and the primary, the professional managerial class and those around them that maintain that system are gonna be becoming more and more diverse in this age of diversity, equity, and inclusion post George Floyd while the hammer and the and the baton and the steel-toe boot gets shoved up more and more black, brown, and poor white kids <laughs> behinds. But no one will tell you that because when you mention that, they will call you a class reductionist or will say class doesn't matter with black to make class analysis with black folk makes no sense because black people have no wealth as if there's such a thing as collective wealth if there's such a thing as a racial wealth or racial wealth gap or racial collective wealth when is oprah sending me my check
0: (laughs) (laughs) you didn't know derek varn can just call up elon musk and get a loan you didn't know that's you know, how it, it, works? It,
1: it just reinforced all of these ridiculous ideas that we have here pl- with with this whole race charade industry that many people profit from trying to use racial grievance and guilt when actually what we need is policy rooted in social democracy to change the condition of life of poor and working class people in this country many who disproportionately happen to be black and brown instead of acting on these elite whims, whether they be intersectionality, critical race theory, or these other ideas that are financed by the foundational world, like yeah. san charities reparations fantasy, that actually are going to do anything but actually put money in the pockets of black elites, people with degrees, who own 10% of black wealth anyway, understand something about this wealth gap charade. If you made the bottom 90% of Black people and white people economically equal in wealth, over 77% of the racial wealth gap would still exist. You know why? Because the racial wealth gap is the super majority of It's between the top 10% of Blacks and the top 10% of whites who both own over 90% of the racial wealth of their respective categories. Yet we want to talk about how class doesn't matter. Yet I've been reading a book about Black political science and Black history that talks about how in the last 50 years, the biggest growth in actual gaps is within the Black community. There's been over like a 150% increase in economic gap between the black poor and working class and black elites over the last 50 years. But we want to talk about the racial wealth gap between blacks and whites. Because the charade is of course, all black folks suffer racially together, but yet we have these five black cops who snuffed out this working class black kid. And everyone's asking, well, why does this happen? Because they, they are providing the role of the police in a capitalist society. Mm-hmm. to regulate the lives of the
0: poor. Eric uh, Varn, would you like to uh, chime in there?
1: You know, I, I think a lot about
2: this because it's actually relevant to when we talk about labor, But, um, and I'll talk about how it's relevant um, uh, later. But one of my political awakenings um, that I admit was part of turning me uh, conservative for a brief time in my life i've talked about one half of it a lot which is the going to the battle for seattle then going to sea island and being disenchanted with um with left liberal activists um before we called them that you know we just called them radicals back then right, yeah. but but um the other thing that got me is i have really been invested in anti-racism for most of my life, Um, but the political class of black mayors in Georgia um, were able to protect themselves off of racial solidarity, you know, racial solidarity claims, just like the white, um, you know, Dixiecrats were able to do. Uh, And when they all became Republicans in the year 2000, but they just flipped the D to an R. But like it was the same grift is you could play up the racial solidarity and completely suck all the wealth out. I mean, literally suck all the wealth out of your town. And and, you know, I thought it was primarily a white phenomenon Um. And then I saw what happened to places like Macon or Atlanta in the 70s and 80s. Um, where like I mean Pascal was talking about it this morning. Think about all those you, you hear about all those black murders in, in of, of, of poor black kids in the 70s, and the black mayor did nothing. Like
0: because well, he's light skinned,
2: uh, man uh, of Jackson, yeah. A- and so and so that was that was a political awakening for me. And when I would try to talk to people about it when I was in college, they would just and, and a lot of them were were um, rust belt Yankee uh, transplants to the south because at the time, you know, the rust belt was you know how you meet people from Michigan and Ohio everywhere in the country because their economies basically run on tears. Well, <laughs> like. Um, Uh, so like, so you had all these immigrant, like, like inter-country migration down to the South mostly. And and they were, they were kids, you know, upper middle class kids, um, who would come down there and, and we try to talk about race relations and they would just say the dumbest shit. And a lot of it was based off not understanding power dynamics within the communities and how they were just not involved at all. And they're like, well, we don't have a black bar and a white bar in, a, in my town in Ohio. And I'm like, one, A, you don't have enough black people to have a black bar in your town in Ohio, unless you're in Cleveland or a major city. And two, and probably more importantly, you don't really understand that there are two completely separate apparatuses here, both very interested in extracting a lot of resources from everyone involved. Um and this doesn't even get me on the fact that, like the biggest encounters I've had with the clan were in were in Pennsylvania and Ohio uh, because my parent, my mom moved up there for a little while and then i I married a Pennsylvania woman when I was really young um and lived with her in johnstown and and so like the racial and class narrative around this is like fundamentally dishonest. Mm-hmm. um and it it blew my mind and kind of, i didn't know where to go and so you know um i ended up in con- in pretty conservative land uh for a while um that's i think and i think that's a lot of people's awakening is when they hear this talk i've been talking about this with like the the um black and brown disaffiliation with progressives okay like while there's not been a whole lot of change of racial identification with the Democrats yet, there's been a massive uh, like, removal of identification with um, progressives and leftists amongst people of color, according to Pew polls, and the economic issues and stuff haven't changed, but I think a whole lot of people now are just seeing how hollow a lot of this rhetoric is that like, okay, we have a highly, like you go into, I went into a Barnes and Nobles and I was like, oh, we have all these Nigerian names on the shelf now and this, that, and the other. And and I was like, I think a lot of people have a hard time explaining this when they're constantly told about this massive wealth gap. The wealth gap is real in the sense that if you calculate what the Elites of our country have been, um, and when I say elites, I mean the most elite of capitalists. We're now talking about a subsection of a subsection. Yeah, the the people who started capital here are all from a few families, and they're all they're not just white, they're Mm wasps, like, but that's been diversifying. And and you go, you, you, I used to think, oh, you go into the board of Harvard and you'll see only white faces, and yes, they're pushing all this. You know, um, anti-racist talking points, and but look at how is that that the class divide between people who go to college gets worse and worse, which it is by the way, it's gotten more severe than it's than it's ever been since the since the GI Bill. Um, which so it means that like when when I say when you guys say well black and brown people are majority poor and then I, and then I point out to you well if that's the case and the class disparity in universities has gotten worse. And 40% of all white applicants at the elite universities are only legacy admission. Who are all these people of color going to elite universities? Because it's not trickling down at all, despite what uh, what you're told about these policies. Black wealth has not recovered from the 2000s. Uh, you know, when nope. I say black wealth, I, I specifically mean working class black wealth and home ownership, things like that. Yeah. Home ownership that has not changed significantly at all since 2007. And, and so, and, and in fact, in some ways it looks to be getting worse. So that totally comports with what Pascal is saying that like there is, there is the development of a black um quote, upper middle class, a back, a black bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. and while I don't normally throw words like comprador around because I don't know how nationalism is going to work on racial lines in in North America, they kind of feel like a comprador class that's been able to get everyone on their side um, in a real sense by also using the fact that they look like people who are really suffering, and that statistically speaking. Um, black people are more likely to be poor. But no one's asking why that isn't changing, despite the fact that our elites definitely look
1: more diverse than they used to. Say it again for the people in the back.
0: Did you want to add something to that, Pascal Revere?
1: No, because what, 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 what people fail to realize is that in, in the 50-plus year counter-revolution that we talk about so much on this, in, on this show, wages have not only stayed stagnant they've been on the decline what that means is that even though you get paid more per hour like in other words say like in 1965 minimum wage might have been like a dollar 25 an hour right and now it's like 750 or 775 with with adjusted for inflation the value of that 77 775 is actually lower than that dollar and change that you were getting in 1965, because the cost of living goes up and actually wages haven't increased. So as a result, people are working just as many hours and harder, but they're getting less money and they're actually becoming poorer. At least the bottom, maybe 65% of society, those at least for sure who are working class, but what is happening, particularly with the expansion of technological jobs, digital jobs as well, mm-hmm. is that there is more work where, if you are educated with those skills, you can work the same, less hours and make significant large amounts of money in the tech world, in the industrial world. Elites in the professional managerial class will make much more money because they have IR, they have IRAs, 401ks, they're stock vested, and so on and so forth. So what happens is that the gap between those who are, say, the top 10% salaried class and the bottom 90% wage earners or workers is huge because the only place where there's been any actual increase in the value of labor is at the absolute top, or at least the income, while the majority at the middle and the bottom is just going down and getting lower and lower and lower. And what has happened with the post-civil rights move to diversity, equity, and inclusion with things like minority set aside, affirmative action, and so on and so forth, Which I'm not saying I'm opposed to because we don't want to have an all white male, you know, professional managerial class. But the problem with that is, is that if the only thing you get out of that is that everyone who works at the board of Coca Cola is racially proportioned, so 14% of Coca Cola's board is black, 60% is white, and 12% or or 17% is Latino or whatever. What that means is that everyone else who's not working at the board of Coca-Cola is working for, like, scrap-level wages. Because, yeah, Coca-Cola is diverse, and all those places are diverse, but everyone else, even if you proportionally represent them, are fighting for smaller and smaller scraps at the bottom. As As the... professional managerial elite becomes more and more diverse, the wages at the bottom are getting less and less and less, and there are more people down there. And there are people who are advocates of diversity, equity, and inclusion who believe, well, the reason I don't have a problem with capitalism is that I just have a problem with the racial aspect. So if we actually had a society where 14% of the top was Black, and fourteen percent of the bottom was white, and was was black. Everything would be fine. What that literally means is that you can have a society where all of the slave owners were proportionally represented, but fourteen percent were black, sixteen percent were white, <laughs> and say twenty percent were Latino, and everyone else would be a slave.
0: I,
2: I mean, In proportion.
0: I, it's. It feels like. DEI is is very much a class project because when you hear people talk about it they only speak about it from the boardrooms and it definitely feels like well if we have more women of course more women of color we we can only listen to their voices we have to sit back and listen to what they say Um, we don't care we don't see the people at the bottom that are making this machine go to your point about Coca-Cola because probably many of those workers are probably third party you know what I mean it's just we have to make these board rooms look like a a benetton ad from 1985 because you know that's what equality is going to look like
2: and it's highly divisive um so one of the things that i you know that the dei has been used to do here is because of one of the points of abraham x kendi that we should remove anti-discrimination clauses so we can discriminate for race particularly to uh to promote certain uh, certain races over others um and lay off people based on racial qualifications and under an overrepresentation in the market um this gets brought in to my union all the time it comes down from the national uh leadership a lot um, and on one hand, I actually do think, like, not having enough black teachers and uh, Latin teachers is a problem. Um, but I always tell people, well, it's a very simple answer. Pay better, because if you're a first-generation college graduate, why the fuck would you become a teacher? You
0: went to college to learn how to code. You didn't go to college to learn
2: how Right. To exactly. Like, so so you know the the solution is actually just fixing the problem for everybody and it sometimes is framed even but within the union as where we can pick one which which is horrible but then you get into stuff like um removing discrimination clauses well what's going to happen if we move is we if we remove discrimination clauses in utah okay there there's not enough percentage of of the workforce right now that is of color. It's like probably three or 4% in an area that it should be, it should be higher. Absolutely. Um, uh, but what is it going to do? I can tell you what it's going to do. It's going to get rid of every single other um, <laughs> minority group that it can non-Mormons, um, uh, trans and, and, lgbtiqa people etc because if you remove it for one you remove it for everything and those people are actually more represented in the workforce than people of color there would also be a lot more and we have a ton of it anyway laying women off for being pregnant Mm -hmm. um that's super common in 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 my field if if you are a if you are a female and you uh because the way the contract works in Utah, you're, you're vulnerable for the first three years of your employment, which, by the way, is the longest most new teachers uh, – you know, 55% of new teachers don't mat, don't last past the first three years anyway. So it, even though you have a contract and a union, you're effectively an at-will employee for the first uh, – on, on actually, it's worse um, because you can be fired for any reason with, with, with very little notice and not rehired for any reason for very little notice. Uh, but you, unlike at most that will work, can't quit without a thousand dollar penalty. Oof. Um, so because you are under contract now, I think this is really pernicious and it, it, what worries me about it and to get, to maybe get some of our more liberal friends to think about it, uh, if they need to think about anti-racism for this. Uh, this is a way in which you can look like you're helping black people and do nothing for the majority of black people. Because we, let's also be honest here, we're dealing with um, teachers who are not in the elites, um, but they are in, if you look at, if you compare them to other workers, all right. And we do this thing in American with stats where we mention jobs that require degrees, but don't mention that most people who have degrees don't actually get jobs that formally or legally require them for cartelized reasons. Um, so you compare jobs to job, you know, jobs to job people with degrees, nurses, and, and teachers are getting shit on. But we're still in the upper 50% of the income bracket, on the very bottom of the upper 50%. So and remember, most of the wealth is in that. It's in. Not, it's not even like it's not even in the one percent. It's in the one point one percent. And then after that, it's in like the top twenty. But we're still, we would still be elites income wise amongst workers. That's true. Like if you're comparing us to other workers, we have, we're not hourly. We have other perks. Um. So that's that's an interesting problem, right? So you so immediately ironically and and when we dealt with this with and it was there was a diversity equity and inclusion division within both the union and hr and the, the 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 union DII people were really kept away from actually almost all the other teacher working groups all right which is interesting and their suggestions that we do stuff like pull, pull anti-discrimination clauses from our contracts was, was immediately divisive. It didn't work. It's only been tried in one city, in one place in the United States, and that's been all over the conservative news. The left-wing and liberal news, despite the fact that they you know, supposedly signed on to this uh, critical race theory interpretation, have not talked about it at all because also at public institutions, this is blatantly illegal. Like you can't, you can't actually take on an anti-discrimination clause from, from the, uh, and put a, and put a priority hiring firing clause in without breaking, without breaking, um, prior interpretations of, of court statute from, at the civil court, at the Supreme court level. And with this Supreme court, that's an idiotic move. Like, so even if you, even from the standpoint, if you believed in this, that's stupid. So, but that's just, that's just teachers' unions and teachers' unions have a lot of weird dynamics. Um, one of the other things that, that I've been trying to get people to square, what's the race that is most unionized, has the most union density within it? Does anyone know? It's black people. Black people. And do you know why? They're disproportionately municipal workers and and police officers. Right? The highest section of unionization and, and this is a code of art. You go look at the BLM's, uh, the, the, not BLM, BLS statistics, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, and look at the sector that is the most unionized. It's protective services. Mm-hmm. That's cops. Mm-hmm. All right. By the way, which when when the DSA and activists were like, we have to keep the kept the cops out of the unions. Why don't the AFL listen to us? Now this has been dropped, but this was a big thing in the odd teens. And I was like, because it's the largest sector in the AFL-CIO. Mm. Like, like it is literally the most unionized profession, and then municipal workers, and then teachers, and then nurses. All right. Um. Now, what you see there is, I don't know how people define PMC. I tend to bristle at the term sometimes, but if you use Adolph Reed's definition of of PMC, which I do think is more coherent than many of the other ones we get, you will see that teachers, police officers, nurses, and whatever don't really count. We don't have fiduciary responsibilities. We're not in the top 20% of income earners, but we also... Are protected in ways most workers aren't. And that's not just if you have a degree, by the way. A lot of people think this is all about having college degrees. It's not. Um, if you're a municipal worker, you're cartelized by being a by by working for a city and having a very kind of closed market for that.
0: Now, um real quick, can you define cartelized? So cartelized,
2: yeah. So cartelized means that there are there are other things that you need to do to be part of the employment. There's either legal restrictions such as licensure or there are, are, are there guilds you have to join AKA trade unions, but they're really guilds um, that maintain that also maintain that licensure and maintain their own apprenticeship programs. Um, or there are um, like municipal workers where you pretty much have to join the union and, um, now and that's part of your employment. So if you refuse to do it, you cannot be employed. Now I'm, you know, I'm not super sympathetic to people who refuse to join a union. I'm in a union. I'm actually even a union rep, which is going to surprise people about a lot of stuff I'm going to say later on today. But like, how? Ask yourself. Well, how is it that their highest union density is in um, African Americans, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics? Now that's still a small proportion of the population, because. Uh, black people are what fourteen to fifteen percent of the population depending on which stat you look at. Mm-hmm. Um, so 40 percent union density and in that field, still gonna be like maybe three or four percent of the population um, but there is a real sense that um, we say that union people uh, u- unionized fields get better get better pay, better benefits, better jobs and they do. OK, but how does that square with the other stats we know about wealth? Well, it's because these even in areas where there are high union density, like municipal workers, the unions aren't growing in fields where they already exist. And so even though, for example, we talk about like the black working class, a lot of it is actually in unions. Um a lot of it be, still being a significant minority, but that's that's not here to there. And why they're in unions is actually, you know, for people to think that we don't think racism is real is racism because the anti-discrimination laws in the 60s and 70s were were actually respected pretty much by the federal government, but at, at will to work states or at right to work states, and those are not the same thing. Um, you, you discover that, well, outside of it's outside of, uh, government jobs, it was so hard to prove discrimination, despite all the laws that, that, that was the main way for, for black men in particular to get stable jobs was to go into government work a large part of it being policing our military.
0: That's the joke in, and, uh, and I'm going to get you sucked up. What happened to all the revolutionaries? They all got government jobs. <laughs> but let's pivot to the topic of the show today. Is there a labor resurgence? Uh, with much hype surrounding Starbucks unions and several wildcat strikes in industries, is there a resurgence in labor? According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, union membership fell and has been falling for decades. Uh, is there still a bit of a social stigma to working in the trades? As much as we hear people talk about the working class and in these circles, how many actually want to work in these fields? Learning to code was to be the pathway to financial freedom, but that has led many into student debt bondage. Trade labor is down. People don't want to be pipe fitters and carpenters, even though the salaries are good and there are medical benefits and pensions. Cornell study showed that a non-college-educated union worker will earn more than a college graduate non-union worker, yet still there is a large vacancy of skilled labor. While we can be excited about the unionizing efforts of Starbucks employees, for many, that's a transitional job. Will many of these people be dues-paying members once they've been integrated into the corporate workforce and possibly become PMC? Derek and Pascal, I'm sure you have a lot to say about this topic.
2: Pascal, you want to go first because I'm going to just be spitting stats and facts for an hour and talking about what they mean.
1: <laughs> well, I think that that that's first of all. I think that the uh, as we usually do on this show, we defer to expertise. <clears throat> Excuse me, we defer to expertise. I mean, not only are you a union member, but you have a position in your union, so you know you are uh, definitely in a position to discuss the role of labor and union movements. Uh, I, uh, you know, I'm the child of a a union member. I have great respect for unions. My mom was a member of 1199 Nurses Union. And uh, I think that there's an aspirational desire for unions to to return to ascendancy in this country. But the reality is, and I I posted on my Facebook about Janet Yellen making the the statement that unemployment is about disciplining labor. Yep. And I've made the statement on the show that so is increasing interest rates about disciplining labor as well, partially. Uh, Yeah,
2: yeah, that's... I agree with you, but I also think that, that, that the raise, ending QE and raising interest rates is also partially about sucking up a lot of overexcited rentier capital. But it has the cited benefit of the way it's being targeted as to really hitting the workforce. And by the way, when we talk about like the coding PMC, uh, that's who's going to get hit first. And we're seeing it. We're actually seeing that explicitly right now. I mean, tech companies are so panicked; they're 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 laying off so many people oh, and hiring yeah, them back.
0: It, it, I, we have to also talk about the fact that when you have a financial windfall, like a lot of these companies had when they were hitting their trillion dollar status, um, and the CEOs were becoming billionaires, you hire a lot in the middle. You hire tons of marketing people. You bring on larger sales staffs. Um, And that's, who's going to get cut first. A lot of the middle.
2: Yeah. So, so uh, Pascal, I agree with you, but what, what if you really wanted, if they were really interested in disciplining um, a bunch of uh, rentier capitalists, which is kind of how they sort of sell it. um, Although it's actually amazing how much Jerome power and John Yellen just admit there after the working class, what they would also do with raising, uh, when raising the interest rates would be to increase taxes on high incomes and which, which isn't necessary to fund anything. I'm not, a, I'm, I'm actually not a true MMT or, but that, 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 that statement, they say it's true. Um, but would suck up a lot of, of the, the literal power that this money affords a lot of the rich. Um, and they would be, Increasing various programs to support the working class during the transition, so there could be a way they can do this. But because of the way they, because of the way we've structured uh, fiscal and monetary policy in the United States, um, and in most of the world, it's not actually just a U.S. problem. It it makes it seem like fiscal policy is not a political problem, and that the fiscal apparatus, or excuse me, monetary policy is not a political problem, and fiscal policy is. And that the monetary apparatus is just objectively act, acting to laws where they're increasingly trying to um, increase the unemployment rate. And the reason why, actually, is because um, the shift to economic nationalism has made the demographic uh, precarity of almost all the world. Um, and then and this, uh, China and East Asia is implicated, too. It, it is literally just like the only place that it's young right now is in the global South. And in even, and in even that it's like specific spots. Um, and that just means like, there's more children being born than, than old people. And that's part of the global instability right now, but the, with unions and with, with this uh, current situation, you are going to see basically people are going to get hurt. Are the middle tier of tech workers and then i think in the next year we're going to see a general recession because it's going to fall out from everybody because that's going to fall downstream into the services and while our productive sector is highly productive and i want people to understand that the us is still the second largest manufacturer in the world and it's integrated in with the chinese system still despite in this what is seemingly like accelerated partial decoupling Um, it. We are seeing that we're going to feel like, oh, the PMC got got first because we have a very unclear notion about who the PMC is. Um, And then we're going to see uh, it spread throughout the general economy. And I think we're going to see it relatively soon. And as that happens, we're going to have a political crisis because it looks like the Supreme Court is probably not going to let Biden's measly pathetic. I debt relief go through. And so you're going to have a bigger squeeze on the middle, um, as well. So, so the upper end of workers is also going to squeeze again. Um most of these things have been based off bubbles. People kind of understand that. But let's talk about the unionization, right? Because we keep on hearing about I've been sold for I've been told for two years now that we're in a union renaissance, and I've been telling everyone I know, I think this is a con. All right. Um, But I'm going to give you the exact numbers, and I'm going to tell you even what the AFL-CIO said. Since 1984, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has been taking the statistics on on, on worker density. There are other ways to find out the stuff before the 80s, but that's when it started getting measured. Now, I know that you know, and I know, that 1984 was not a high point of union activity in America. The high point of union activity is in 1957. But we don't have government stats for that. There are ways to get those stats, and I'll get to that later. Union membership right now is down from its his historical low in 2001. So, and strike activity is actually just returned to pre-2019 levels, which is still historically very low. Okay. So you're hearing about this uh, this uptick in strikes. And in some ways it's real if you're only thinking about the world before COVID. I mean, right after COVID, excuse me. Um, we actually saw a real uptick in, in labor militancy and mm-hmm. strikes in 2018, 2019. Um, but since then, we're just returning back to levels that are like 2015, 16 levels um, union membership was 10.3% in, in 2021 it's now 10.1%. We lost 0.2%. Now the, the AFL CIO and many people who want to tell me that I'm being too pessimistic. Um, most of whom I will add are not in unions, um, uh, are, are citing a number of an increase of 273,000 members, uh, which is true. We did have a raw number increase, but the increase of people in the job force, uh, went up by 5.3 million in 2022. All right. Okay. Now let's look at where this growth is at though, because we hear about the Starbucks unions. There was 643, uh, union authorization votes last year. Um, Over half of them went through. That's actually unheard of historically. But then why are we still down? Well, a third of those union authorization votes are literally Starbucks. Literally Starbucks. All right. And the average Starbucks team is 20 to 40 people. So each of these union authorization votes is for a smaller amount of people than historically they have been. Now, this is not good or bad. I just I just want you to understand that. Furthermore, restaurants are are the least unionized part of the uh, the workforce. They're about two percent. Now I want you to think about why that's the case, okay? Because because it's 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 obvious when you think about the structure of those workforces. Um, most restaurant work is dependent on it its labor being transitory, except for management. All right very few people work at the same service industry job for more than two or three years Th- those j- those jobs are actually very low profit rate jobs and i can get into why that is too but that's not here and there um and so one of the problems that you have when you unionize that sector is you're dealing with very small clusters of individuals per contract sometimes as low as 10 and usually no more than 50. And you're dealing with um, low-profit margin businesses, many of whom are franchises, and so you have to negotiate each contract at each site. Um, now, that's not true with Starbucks, but Starbucks's contracts are still going to be done site by site. So even if you have, say, a regional contract for everyone in a, in a, in a metropolitan area, um you're still going to be dealing with small groups of people so you're still going to be dealing with three or four hundred people who probably won't stay in that field um in an in an area where a lot of the workforce is going to be scab labor because it's ununionized and people can come in and so there is a way to undercut these people um it's still scaring parts of capital though and which tells you that it is important we shouldn't pretend that it's not um but It doesn't work the same way and doesn't indicate any massive movement in the overall workforce. That's just a statistical fact that you have not been hearing. I went through on my own channel and went through the the various liberal-oriented, I went through Vox, I went through um, MSNBC, uh, uh, MCBC, uh, all those kind of Democratic Party-adjacent things and you see them talking about strike uh, striketober and whatnot. And actually it's socialist sources like Doug Henwood, who I don't always actually have a lot of political problems with. But that's not first here. He's good on these stats pointing out that, no, that stuff wasn't what is not really what it looks like. It is the way it's being reported. Um, and I went through uh, and I've broken down these stats. Like Fox talked about the, the 260 attempts to union, uh organization and made it sound like there was massive amounts of new workers coming in with that there's not here's the even bigger and scarier trend um let's talk about this now i mentioned that you could make the argument and the afl cios leadership did that okay well we lost density but we gained in real numbers um so it's still probably good and those numbers are in quote blue collar work like the service sector which uh, it's not traditionally seen as blue collar but up not neither here nor there uh it, i guess that word just means not college educated now um but the the reality of the situation is in the end that most of the unionization is in the trades and in the industrial sector um And the industrial sector has dropped down to about 9% union density. And it's also mostly robots. So like, it's like when everyone talks about, you know, these great, when you get the image of the worker and they're trying to tell you it's going to be like the factory worker and the logistics worker, and you got the hard hat guy on your head, that is 17% of the economy in the developed world. It's less than 50% everywhere in the world. Um, and it is, uh, incredibly, uh, weakened in its, in its, in its labor representation. And unfortunately, if you understand like what happened in 2007, 2008 around the auto workers unions and whatnot, by the way, uh, the, the UAW's leadership from 2007 to 2008 is in prison. Um, the, the way that this is kind of played out is that for a while, the, the few factory jobs that did exist in the South were actually out competing union jobs in the industry when you adjusted for PPP. So PPP is purchasing power. So how, like, so we always, when we talk about money, we forget in the United States, although we all know it, like when we think about it, that, that like, okay, you, you, if you had a $15 an hour minimum wage, that's worth a lot less in California than it is in like Macon Georgia, right? We all know that. Um, and uh, I'm gonna it's gonna get more shocking, my friend. Um, so so in these sectors that the unions are established, they're shrinking as a proportion of the economy and they're shrinking in union density. Um, and despite the fact that union popularity has gone up, it's now over, you know, fifty percent for the first time since the seventies, uh, and, and union approval. Uh, but despite that, most of the unions that aren't that are pro- professionals unions um, are uh, uh, moving away from even the union model. They advertise themselves and make their stuff talk about organizational models and like lobbying and advocacy groups. Uh, because they're increasingly willing to accept uh, no strike clause. Furthermore, as much as we hear about the NCLB, and, and thus as a result of the National Labor Relations Act, remember that uh, unionization and, and public unionization started increasing only in the 1970s. It is the, the highest point of unionicity, although it's been decreasing too, um, and we can get into that. But what one also sees there... Is that increasingly, since they're not subject to the to the NCLA Act, uh, some people actually rise this with the railroad workers. The railroad workers are not subject to the NCLA Act. They are in craft unions, i.e., the each union represents not the industry but a part or a subsection or a position within the industry. So there's like um, management. Uh, unions and there's like the conductors union. And, uh, you know, that's how that is organized and to get what they got to put the fight that they put up took a whole lot of coordinating between unions, um, because they're broken up like that, but they're also exempted from the NCL, uh, the NCLA, which is why Biden could force a contract on them. Well, guess what? Most of the unionized workforce is exempted from the National Labor Relations Act. All Mm. state, municipal, and federal government employees, which is the largest unionized sector, are not subject to the National Labor Relations Act. They are subject to um, state law.
0: So when you say they're not subject to the National Labor Relations Act, what does that mean?
2: It means that, for example, uh, you can force contracts on them. Um, it means that you can force no strike clauses on them without it being in the the contract. You can, you can just legally impose it by legal fiat, which you can't do on private workers. Um, so let me tell you where the union growth is happening. And we'll talk about this, about transitory. We talked about the trades. Um, the trades are highly unionized, but trade unions are very conservative uh, because they also function as part of this cartelization scheme. Now, here's the issue with the trades. Trade, I, I know that we sound like Mike Rowe. Um, if everyone goes into the trades the way everyone goes in the coding, the trades will collapse, all right? We don't have, like, we do need people in them, but we don't need as many people in them as there are people who might need jobs. Um, And so I just imagine we don't need a billion plumbers, not really, okay? Or 20 million plumbers. We might actually need a million plumbers, but people are still hesitant to go to that because they kind of know whether they realize it or not that that area of the economy is the most prone to being hit by the business cycle. So when recessions comes, what gets laid off first construction and the trades automatically. All right. That's, that is the least uh, that is the most responsive to spending. Um, now, why has that not been true for tech in the past? Well, tech, because of low interest, have been leveraging the cost of the low cost of debt with venture capital so that they could be unprofitable and still turn a profit and hit these huge things, but these huge profit margins. But those profit margins were based off of taking your income, hiding your income in, in the form of debt uh, so that you can write it off, making profits on it. But since the debt is cheaper than your profit it's profit rate, it still makes sense to do. Once the debt the cost of debt goes up by raising that, well, what's gonna happen? You're not gonna make money anymore. So a lot of these companies are are having trouble meeting paywall. And again, as we said, who's gonna get hit first? It's gonna go down the chain. Like it's not like Elon Musk, you know, Elon Musk and, and all those guys have been hemorrhaging money left and right this year. But that's not who's gonna pay for it. Their employees are gonna pay for it, all right. And all the shenanigans at, at, at Twitter, for example, to understand the labor market was a distraction from the fact that Elon Morse was forced by the company, and in a way, a lot of the company's leadership was able to hide the fact that they were about to have to slash jobs for being unprofitable uh, by by having someone else come in and do it. So, so yeah, and and, and Patrick uh, Leslie's right. As soon as you bring in more people in the trades, their their ability to command. Uh, wages will go down, Um, which is also why the unions aren't interested in it. But let me tell you the last most damning thing about this. So the growth in unions has been mostly in, actually in academic workers, specifically not in adjuncts and long-term academic workers, but in TAs, just like with um, the uh, restaurant workers, that's a problem. And why is that a problem? And why would unions be interested in that then? Because unions are notoriously bad at like not going after new workers because they don't think they're going to stay in long enough, um, and so like they, they don't bother. All right, this is this is known. This was talked. This was a major contributor to what happened with the UAW in two thousand seven. It's also part of them where, like teachers unions often have trouble convincing themselves to recruit new teachers because, like I said, we lose 50 to sixty percent of them depending on the state within the first three to five years. Um, so you know they're not going to be long term dues payers anyway. But why don't they care? All right. Why does not the union leadership care? And why are they focusing on these transitory unions? Well, from the standpoint of professional leadership, if you got someone who's going to be in your union for only six years, they're not going to develop organization skills. They're not going to be able to stay up in the union, but they will pay dues and you will will be able to negotiate with them. All right. But a TA necessarily will only have that job for at most six years, and likely more like three to four. And for many of the TAs in the humanities, that's going to be the only academic job they ever have. All right? Now, they do need representation. They do need unionization. I am not saying they don't, but I want you to think about the structural implications of what that means. If you're... These unions are not represented by like new TA unions a lot of the time. They're not like Amazon United. They're going into things like the the SIEU and and largely actually the UAW, the the National Auto Workers Unions. Now, why is the Auto Workers Unions wanting to do that? Well, they can't grow in their own sector. And these people also aren't going to be competition ever to union leadership. They won't. They're only there for six years. So the union leadership can take these people in, advocate for them. And in the case of the most recent strike, a strike that I didn't even hear the left talk about that much, it was the largest strike in the country was the uaw uc strike well the uaw claimed victory very quickly but they didn't get any of the ass of the workers of the tas they didn't even get a cost of living adjustment all right now why doesn't the union leadership care because the unions themselves are invested their their net worth has doubled Since 2010, despite the fact that they don't have members, they no longer care if they need members. All right. And if you can get members from short term areas and transitory workers, that's even better because they're not going to be a threat to you. Now, I know it's not fun to think about union leadership as a threat to people in unions. But there is a tendency towards bureaucratic drift and oligarchy in unions. We all know it. It's part of why unions became super unpopular in the 70s and 80s. And that's when we started seeing the union organizations building up their backbench from um, things like investments and in now in land holdings. Now, that's not particularly liquid, but it means they're not using their money and they have no incentive to use their money to get new people in the fields that are fair that they already exist in. And they're growing in fields that are going to be temporary, but that doesn't change. That makes it where you have a constant churn of membership, but they're not going to stand to, to build up new skills and really become other union organizers. That is why the Amazon United thing is different. Lastly, when I, when I tell you the amount of money that is involved in this, and there's a, there is a study called labor's, uh, Fortress Finance. There's a, another article in In These Times that goes into this in a simpler way, but if you want to actually find the, the raw numbers, you can find it. Um, but since 2010, union density has declined from about 12% to just over 10%. And this was before that we even knew this this year. That means since 2010, there are 700,000 fewer workers and union members. So even if you do buy the ACL, uh, the ACL CIOs, Uh, read on this being a net improvement. it's still a long-term downward trend. Now, what is interesting about that is there was a spike in increase in unionization very briefly in 2011, 2012, and 2013. By the way, which means this narrative that Bernie saved the fucking labor movement is a lie. All right? I'm just going to say it outright. It's not remotely true. But let me, let me get back into this. Uh, yet the finances of unions have improved. In, two, in 2020, organized labor has three, uh, $35.8 billion in assets with only $6.8 billion in liabilities, leaving a net of $29.1 billion in assets. This figure has almost doubled since 2010. The growth has been... Uh, has been primarily by increased dues on income with some raises and salary rises as well as long-term investments. But the long-term investments are what make it secure. So this has led to things like in my union, now rural workers are overrepresented in my union who are highly conservative. So people go, well, why don't the unions fight more? Well, if you're in a very conservative area, the usually you actually have suppressed it's low population. And so you have suppressed uh, property values and whatnot. Although not that suppressed anymore, but still uh, your, your union dues can be much lower than in the cities. And since they're collecting these dues and not doing anything with them, but investing them, what do you think is happening? So it also means that it's cheaper for people in areas that, that are not as precarious, such as suburban schools, et cetera, to be in a union. So ironically, the places where it is most expensive to live uh, are not unionized. Now, there are three exceptions to that. And this is where most of the union workers in the country are. New York, California, and let me look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics real fast because the other one's weird, Hawaii. I don't, I'm coming here to tell you that I feel like I've been gaslit by the left telling me stuff that I am in a union and an active union activist and also have connections and like people who work on the back end of the Teamsters and hearing all this stuff about the rebirth of unionism from people in the DSA and going, there is no evidence for this. This is in specific fields that are transitory. They are Highly underutilized and under and have low, low union density. So they seem like big victories, and they are, but the overall trend is the in the other direction. And it took the fucking railroad strike for people to start to see it. But even then, people haven't really been looking. We've gotten reports both years that I've heard about this rebirth of labor. Um, and both years union membership has been declining in density. And where it's growing are areas that aren't great. We talk about the trades. All right. But, you know, we aren't seeing large scale unions. And I'm going to get, I'm not going to throw the last bomb and I'm going to turn it over because this is important. Almost none of the new unions had negotiated contracts yet. So we don't know if all these new Starbucks unions and whatnot are going to take no strike clauses.
0: Well, let's. Pascal, so, you want to uh, add something in here? And I know people have been uh, kind of firing up the uh, chat with with disagreements. Um, they're all wrong. <laughs> well,
1: Warren, this is um Inside is really,
0: thought, Warren. We're supposed to keep that quiet. Um,
1: this, is really, this is really sobering so I, I want to say
0: this first and foremost. If someone has a problem with somebody, if you can't explain it and you just tell people they're wrong, that's just angry typing. So... Let's no, not... I
2: know I actually know the person who is saying it. They're they're a union activist in the teachers unions and they've been trying to gaslight me for several years about these facts. Well, they can fuck hey, themselves.
0: Hey, but no one's going to fuck anybody. Yet. There's no fucking. <laughs> but I want to open up the phone lines. Fuck free phone lines, by the way.
1: Oh wait, we're doing phone lines today?
0: I'm down to open up the phone lines. We can have a, a fun discussion. We are an hour and a half into the show.
1: Phone lines uh, open with Varn. Get your gun out. And uh,
0: this is what we call the Saturday Free Show. Because we don't go behind a paywall and open up the phone lines. Just to give you guys a taste of what we do here on TIR on our Tuesday and Thursday shows. When we open up the phone lines and also the Mau Mau Hour with Pascal Rupert. I am going to open up the phone lines. So, Pascal, while I go do that, you and Varn be entertaining without... Any fucking?
1: That wouldn't happen.
0: No one's gonna fuck anyone. No one's gonna tell anyone to fuck themselves.
1: My mom says we need to stop cursing on the show.
0: No one's gonna tell anyone to intercourse themselves. Don't intercourse yourself. While well, I open up the phone lines, your mom is correct, and I need to stop saying that in the N word. We gotta th- see. I'll stop myself.
1: For I have to tell you, I'll be very, very frank, this is an extremely, extremely um, controversial position because so much of the posturing on the contemporary non-existent left is based on the illusion that we're having this resurgence of labor activity in the face of the fact that the whole progressive Sanders phenomenon has collapsed on itself. So the only way that these people have been giving themselves the uh, justification for their... Uh, various activity, whether it's podcasting, tweeting or or, you know, writing articles in online publications that nobody but their friends read is by saying that like, oh, there's a resurgence in labor and blah, blah, blah. And one of the first places that I actually saw that the uh, this narrative was was rather uh, false was actually through comments that Doug Henwood made on his Facebook page that you know, you know, the numbers aren't showing this is correct. Two questions. Number one, what does this say about uh, people praising Biden's NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, as some kind of uh, return to the glory days of FDR? You remember the days when, um, what's my man's name, who's was uh, uh, the big uh, FDR praising guy who was on the show?
2: Uh, Harvey K.
1: Harvey K. You know, remember all that discourse about, oh, Biden's a new FDR, blah, 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 all that nonsense. Talking, And I remember specifically when I was uh, on uh, Crystal Ball's show with Kyle uh, Kalinske, she said the only reason she voted for Biden was because she was worried about the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB. And she feels that what Biden's NLRB has done since he has been president, vindicated her voting for Biden. in the, And she used the evidence of you know, Amazon and all of this other union activity. What is the response you have for that particular uh, position? Uh,
2: so it's actually complicated. Um, Biden's NCLRB actually is better than the NCLB has been in a long time. Um, that's a different issue than uh, what Biden's overall labor policy is and where that's going to stop and go. So when we talk about like the NCL, NCLRB, the NCLB has been backing up the, these unionization movements and TAs and, and, and uh, Amazon workers and stuff like that. And they really have, and they've been good on that. Um, but th- like I said, there's, a huge portion of the unionized workforce that is not subject to the National Labor Relations Act, and thus is isn't subject to the NCLRB. Uh, states can do what they want. We, you've never, ever heard about, like, for example, when there was a real union uptick and because of what happened in Wisconsin, and then we saw the teachers' unions really start to rise up uh, between... Between two thousand and fifteen and two thousand and nineteen, that's all real. there's nothing fake about that. You know um, it's just it was just kind of sectional. Um, you have to remember that like the, you never heard about the National Labor Relations Board being involved with that because it legally can't be, okay? Uh, areas of crucial interest, areas of municipal and state workers, et cetera, are exempt from that. That's also why. Um, public sector unionism didn't really exist in any real like level outside of like New York until the 1960s and 70s and it came so, through a series of wildcat strikes now where i am more sympathetic if we talk about like union at, like labor as bigger than the unions i do think there's something going on in, in like labor as a whole right now the problem is there does not seem to be any organizations really able or are even willing to really take advantage of that um, and to use it in a way. And that's not even getting to the fact that like, you know, like why the fuck does the AFT have Wendy Weigart going to Ukraine? Well, like that has nothing to do with our jobs. It, it really doesn't make it look like these unions are adjuncts of one party and that's it. Um, it, now I can't speak to national unions, and and I, I know that I know that what I'm going to get pushed back on, um, uh is is going to be like that. This indicate you know that this is like a, a area of mass movement of labor. Wildcat strikes are. We're not seeing wildcat strikes, but we are seeing real angry workers. They're doing stuff like you know, mass quitting and getting their jobs back. That's one example and stuff like that. We can't know how much of that's going on. It's not recorded. Um, But what what I what I pointed out to people, there's been a tendency to look at that stuff and try to extrapolate from that, that the labor movement is winning. And it's just not. And the areas in which the labor movement is doing better are, are areas that have really perverse incentives. And... And so, in some ways, it doesn't actually matter what the NCLB does until well, the until we reform our labor laws.
0: Well, Derek, we have a call, and I, I think this is going to be—I know it is. Okay, but is it, we're not fucking anybody, right?
2: No, no, no.
0: We're we're all friendly.
2: Sure. Okay. I, I actually like this person, but we've been disagreeing on this for years. Okay. Well.
0: Let's push it through. Caller, what is your name and where you call from?
3: Hey,
4: uh, David Effish. Uh, what's up, Jason? Hey, what's going um, on? And I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, the uh, land of my
1: uh, friend, Conan. Hey, what's going on, David? Yes. How are
4: you? Yeah, yeah, Conan Neutron. Yeah, indeed. He actually uh, was over at our um, union members um, canvassing event. Uh, met him for the first time back in, uh, ooh, I guess it would have been 2020, right right before the pandemic. Um Yeah, but uh, speaking of which, um, so basically, I guess the thing is is that when we're talking about like you know worker self-organization and like worker activity, a lot of that stuff is not going to be pushed forward by like union density, right? A lot of that stuff is happening because of like the age of the population, right? And the um, you know, if you're looking at uh, you know, stuff like uh, in areas where you're getting a lot of development, right? Um, and right now we just happen to be. In an era when we have extremely uh, low unemployment, right? Um, some of, some of that, honestly, what we had to do with Trump's economic policy, right? Um, so for about three years, he pushed very, very hard, and that was actually one of his, I guess, uh, achievements until he, you know, drove the country into the ground. Um, that, uh, you know, he kept that unemployment rate extremely low, you know, especially mm-hmm. for uh, black Americans in places like Milwaukee and, you know, Gary, Indiana and, you know, Chicago, uh, where you do still have, you know, a lot of uh, labor activity, at least in Milwaukee and uh, Chicago and I guess in Philadelphia as well, areas like that. Um, but, you know, like the thing is, too, it's like, you know, I can be like accused of gaslighting people, but I'm just ta- I'm just telling you what I see with my two eyes. And, you know, to be honest, I think everybody else has seen it too, right? So when I'm on the job site and I'm working with people, right, and I'm talking about, like, you know, how to meet each other's needs, right? We're going to be talking about that in a collective basis, right? We're not talking about having individual conversations with our boss, even though our bosses really love that, right? We're talking about having, you know, councils and meetings and then meeting with the boss collectively. I mean, I think everybody here, at least anybody here that actually works, yeah. You know, on a job site, is having that experience, right?
2: Yeah, I'm, I mean, uh, David, I, I think we, I think I think we might have a disagreement over over what this means, but I actually don't think that that we aren't seeing people really feel like they need to push back um, as groups of workers. What I've found interesting is that hasn't seemed to materialize. In the formal union movement that people attach it to, and that's, well yeah. I think that's a problem of union leadership. Then, and the finances well, back that. I don't
5: up. expect that.
4: From unions. I don't. I just don't expect that from unions. Like, I don't like. You know, if we're talking about like UAW, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. I appreciate some of the work that they're doing, especially you know, helping out some of these um graduate students and this kind of thing uh who have been like you know this is kind of like wage that wage theft for them right but i guess you know i think that that kind of thing those types of people were typically very very difficult to organize the fact that people like that are increasingly um mean, these are also the types of people that are going to be spending policy in 15 years too. remember that right so um these are people that are coming up in the labor movement are getting organized at a young age right um you know i'm going to tell you right now like The approach that you're seeing right now, I I think it's fair to say that, like, you are not going to see worker self-organization, that is not going to be, I don't think that that's ever going to be translated to the behavior of Randy Weingarten, right? I mean, like, and, you know, when we're talking about, like, Ukraine, right, we have debates like this in my union, right? We have debates on, um, you know, stuff like putting the Ukrainian flag, which I very curious, up at our state union headquarters, right, um, and stuff like that. So I, I I find that stuff to be very curious, right? I think that people need to understand that if they are unionizing, they have to pay special attention to the type of charter that they're having. They do not That's want important. to give their union uh, putting the trusteeship. We've had a union that happened to us about fourteen years ago. It's not good. Um, our ATU 998, which Angela Walker, who has been a uh, um, guest on the show in the past, uh, used to uh, be a you know a hard fighter for, um, they are basically, they run the buses here in Milwaukee. Um, they were put in the trusteeship trustee very recently, um, so they need to make sure that their union charters are allow them to have some sort of independence from their national unions right because like if people understand that and understand that national unions and the uaw at the national level and a lot of these labor crats are not on their side and they have to have an antagonistic relationship with them then i think that they'll will be able to have um, some of this worker self organization develop into more productive areas so
2: so david it's interesting like um when you and I, when we talk of broad strokes, we often seem like we disagree. When we actually talk specifics, we often are like saying some of the same things. What I am particularly worried about though is a lot of these union charters are well-established and pretty much have, they're the only form of representation in the areas. Um, and so if you don't apply by those charters that already, if they already exist, you have to actively campaign to, to, uh, to change them. And I yeah. have found um that the strategy that you, you, you you have to do that as a worker and what the union leadership wants you to do are actually diametrically opposed, but that's not really discussed in the way like social Democrats are talking about this, uh, this that much there, there is an exception. And I will think, I will say that uh, I give Ryan Grimm a whole lot of shit deservedly, and I'm not taking any of it back, but his description of the problems in the railway unions uh, exempting that he didn't talk about the fact that they like the history about them not being part of the, uh, the, the national um, labor relations act um, actually was instructive for people to realize what is going on with the nationals and a lot of these unions and why it seems so hard. Uh, but, but let's also like be honest when I deal with, for example, a lot of socialists in the DSA who are in unions um, are who work for unions, a lot of them are staffers. And so their interests are sometimes quite split and quite different. Maybe it does matter. um, They're younger and more interested in this in the long run. But what I'm afraid of in the short run is that the union density is going to hit so low that no one's going to be in these organizations to reform them. And the financial incentives of these organizations are terrible. And I mean, you and I agree with that. Um, another thing I think you should talk about a little bit is, um, and and I happen to like, obviously we know each other, um, uh, is that there that one of the reasons why the teachers unions and stuff in the Midwest do better is they've adopted a strategy actually in the face of the broader. Um, union movement and teaching, which is to try to implement social unionization and community outreach in a serious way. But the national organizations and a lot of the state organizations are moving in the opposite direction. And that's, it's, it's really, it's a really hard sell, even though we both know that if we look at like Minneapolis or Chicago, that we have evidence that this works, that this is why those teachers have victories and with stuff like like i'm talking about with the due structure which gets urban teachers out of the the scenario and thus actually really makes social unionizing harder if you're dealing with like rural and exurban and suburban populations um it's it's incredibly difficult to imagine how that's going to change within the current unions that exist i mean and i'll let you respond so
3: yeah, I mean,
4: I guess we're going to be talking about like union density,
2: right? So, we,
4: you know, we, the, the general trend since uh, the early 80s has been a precipitous decline, right? Since the mm-hmm. early 80s, at least, in union density, right? So, but the thing is that over the past 10 years, since uh, twenty, you know, 11, 2012, or whatever, that union density has kicked up significantly, right? I mean, you agree with that, right?
2: The union Density, so if I actually look at the the uh, Union Density stats, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, w- what happened is, you're right, we did see a lot of, of Union Density increases between 2012 and 2014. It, it, and then we saw another kick up in 2019. But we dropped back to pre-2020 yeah. levels incredibly quickly. Like it, it took COVID. Now that's a massive thing. No one's denying that. But we, w- what I'm hearing about this is I hear about this now. And what is, is funny is, and, and I know, I know you don't agree with this. I happen to know your opinion about this. But this has been sold to a lot of people as being directly tied to the Bernie movement. And I, I see this. No, this starts with Wisconsin up through the teachers' revolts in, in twenty and 2019. And then, um, with with people realizing how fucked they were in the downturn, um, but right. what's what's happening? I mean, one of the things I'm worried about with the TA situation is none of the none of the those workers are happy with the with the negotiated contracts they're getting, and they like I've talked to a bunch of them um, out in California. I've had even some of them on air. And it's been very divisive, even down to like what their degree is in, on how they think they should respond to that. Um, right. And so it's it's becoming very difficult to to parse uh, what to do now. And and the teachers unions, um, we're just like we're just, we're we're shrinking because our entire workforce is shrinking like and they're shrinking from a attri- it's shrinking from attrition. Um you know it's not free shri- it's, it's not shrinking because our our workforce out in the west is, is actually shrinking. So it's like no one goes into teaching and, and and in leaving it in mass. Yeah in Utah and Arizona and in a lot of the the states where you actually have high population growth actually. Um, and so because of, people are aging out of the workforce, right? Uh, yeah and and we still and the the prior trend of
4: go ahead sorry barn
2: and the prior trend of like low uh you know we just have low attention retention in the first five years anyway in most of these states uh it's now with, with the aging out and with covid we just we're having like a like i mean we're looking at class sizes of like technically on paper 50 and we've more or less gotten rid of truancy laws because if everybody showed up we couldn't even have like we wouldn't even be in fire code. Like, and that's, that's, that sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not. And so that's, that's been another problem is a lot of the, what, one of the things I said about the worrying trends of this is we still don't in a lot of fields, we still don't see young people joining unions in those fields. If the unions were already established, and that's very concerning if, if we're, the we're already what established, established. So if the if like so in places that are not unionized, of course it makes sense. Like if you can get it, do it. But in places that are already unionized, there seems to be no real urgency to try to get more people in the union. Like that just doesn't seem to be a know, concern I don't right see that
4: now. that as reflected here in Wisconsin, I just don't see that at all.
2: Okay. Do you
4: think I mean, it's because our, of a different um, local strategy no. or what? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe I guess I, you know, for instance, like our union is entirely voluntary. You know, I mean, it's uh, after Act Ten. Um, you don't, you can be a free rider if you want to, and um, we have, you know, your, uh my union um, represents, uh, you know, kitchen um, uh, food workers, um, safety mm-hmm. staff. Uh, Uh, building engineers, uh, teachers, um, and everybody else in the building, except for um, administrators, right, Uh, who are not in our union uh, for obvious reasons. Um, But uh, they uh, have, like, I believe 95% of our um, workforce there is, and we're also talking about, like, paraprofessionals too, right? Uh, They're also union members, right? Um, and that's like it's not cheap dues are not cheap but they're used effectively and we have a lot of we developed a lot of political power in the city um, I, well, so, so
5: people,
2: one thing that you pointed out there um, I want people and, to listen to go ahead I mean, No, I would and just,
4: you, um so you know so the thing is that we have um we've also again with the whole social unionism thing a lot of our um uh, militancy um has built in work with um immigrants from central america immigrants from um mexico i learned how to speak spanish at during that point um and uh you know uh, i suggest everybody else does too um and uh they it, it, this is not something that's coming from union, union leadership right um another thing is like i was hearing mike davis right before he died and i know that a lot of people here are, uh, or you know, understand Mike Davis's work. If anybody here works with young people these days, there is a degree of militancy and um, responsiveness to collective struggle and to class struggle that we have not seen in decades, if not a century, in this country. And I feel like when we start looking, at, you know, some no offense to you know Doug, Doug Henwood, um. But, you know, a guy with a pink shirt that graduated from Yale, right, like this is not somebody I'm looking to for ideas about where to put my political resources into or, or, or put my efforts into. I look at the kids I work with and I look at their efforts in, you know, uh, joining up and becoming a part of the struggle, right, and improving their lives, right? That is where all it comes from, right? Um, and I suggest that people look towards their neighborhoods and look towards their daily lives instead of stuff online and stuff, you know, statistics, right? Because those statistics are going to reflect our work that we do every day more than the
3: other way around, right?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think. I feel like the stuff online comment is actually fair. Uh, what, what I might push back on you on statistics, but you're right that they should reflect what we actually do. But there's some things that you said that I want to point out to people because they actually are helpful if you want to talk about how I think we were going to reverse this problem. Um, one, uh, social unionizing is important, but another is uh, the charters of a lot of these unions are very different from state to state and even from district to district. And so, for example, a lot of, uh, NEA branches, uh, uh, at the state level organize differently than what David is describing. In fact, we've talked about this in the past, um, in a lot of the Midwest and I, I've tried to actually get good stats on this. It's very hard to find. Um, the unions are open to any worker in the schools, except for administration. In a lot of the West, and, and the South isn't unionized. The teachers aren't unionized at all. In fact, in my home state, it's illegal. Um, but in a lot of the West, uh, the unions are licensed employees only. And we have a separate union for, for for unlicensed staff. That's a huge mistake. That means that like we have no interest in negotiating uh, uh, for like people who have a different contract than us. Um, we're only concerned on our own contract. And that's, that's a, that's a, that is a dire mistake. Um, and, and the other thing that we do that's, re, that, that I think is ludicrous is, is administration, which, I which look, as long as admin exists, it has the right to be unionized, but they're my bosses. They shouldn't be in my fucking union. Like, which I know sounds contradictory to what I'm saying, but they, they are enforcing the contract. Like yes, they should have a right, right to to have their own contract, but like their interests are not in my interest ever um whereas Maybe right, yeah, yeah, whereas like the the i a lot of teachers don't often unfortunately don't see this, but it is in my interest that like the front office workers and the kitchen staff and uh, are very well represented and see our future as a future together. Um, so. Air yeah, professional I,
4: too and safety as well.
2: Right. So, so, you, right. so I think the, you want to talk about the difference in union density. Our union is voluntary. Your union is voluntary. We have less than 20% union density and you have 95%. All right. And the two things we can say from pinpointing, just talking right now, there's two differences uh, you have social unionization and you have um, increasing who can be in the union and breaking up this guild stuff.
0: He also Cut. had a, a huge assault on those unions uh Bingo. some years ago, which also is going to change the dynamic of how many
2: people want to be a part of something
0: after they had it taken away.
2: And it was a full frontal assault. Most of the assaults, usually the GOP in places that have fairly high union density, they're evil, but they, uh, they're slow evil. They they carve it out bit by bit by bit. You know what they're trying to do here is they're trying to take away um, dues being able to be paid out of paychecks. Wow! Like so that we have yeah, to pay I mean, dues of our dues mm-hmm. separately.
4: Because of our effectiveness here in Milwaukee, the um, Wisconsin GOP ran on a um, on legislation. They actually passed this legislation, but it was vetoed by our current governor. Um, to really blow up our school district, it would be uh, busted up into seven different bits, um, and then you know remove our um, democratically elected uh, school board just uh, by fiat by um, state law. Um, You know, and this of course is not supported by anybody from the city. Um, So the thing is that, like, if we want to talk about like class struggle, right, and we want to talk about like the people's relationship to the state, right like the decisions that we make and the kind of labor militancy that we push forward, right? It is, it is effective, all right, first off. And second off, like it will force the ruling class to try to take extreme um, extreme steps to knock that down. Uh, extreme steps that will like often like, you know, delegitimize them or, um, you know, uh, you know end up wind up, uh, you know, hurting them. Uh, at the end, right? So people need to be prepared for that, right? At the end of the day, right? Because like, that is where we're headed in this country.
3: Um,
2: yeah, yeah um, I, I think if you're going to look at the statistics, what I am going to say, um, and you should, uh, I think I, I might disagree with David on that. But what I am going to say is that you absolutely have to look at places that buck those statistics and why. Like, why is... Exactly, right. Like, like, and so yeah, I was actually going to part of my thing today was going to talk about what we could do to change this. But one of the things that, that I, I always tell people, if you can join a union, you have a responsibility to join that union. But you're going in on fighting modes in most unions. Um, right. That, like, and, and your enemy is not just uh, your boss. A lot of times, unfortunately, it is union leadership or like a bad union charter are union charters to disincentivize things. And, and also in the case of like teachers, we have to like, we are fighting the state often directly. <laughs> so it's, right. it's, it, it's something to, to consider. Um, but I, I do think like, I I know I sound like I'm down on the, on the, on the TA unions. I want to like talk about that a little bit because the, for a lot of people in the TAs, uh, uh, um this is going to be the most economic stability they have. And it's real bad. Like if you're going, if you're, if you're get, get sucked into being some kind of humanist um, you are likely to uh, have some of the most academic stability you're ever going to have during your TA period. Now that isn't true in every field. And that's why that, that's why settling up those debates when they get, brought up in like one of these contract negotiations seems to be so contentious is because the incentives are different in different fields within um the organization but one of the things that i have worried about is that from the standpoint of the national union level and getting dues this is great like and it's great in in a in a pernicious way because um those or like if you in six years it's very hard to build up an effective union organization um, that can do social unionizing that isn't really strongly invested and has strong ties to a community, which is why TAs have always been precarious in the past because they're often from outside, they're only going to be there for a few years, um, and. Uh, universities have used them to increase their admin budget without paying anybody for forever. And the, and also the nature of tenure, and I, I don't want to get into this debate. This is a whole different debate, but the nature of tenure means that you've deactivated a lot of, of solidarity from the professorate because they're removed from the concerns. Um, And I think that's a huge point. You know, a huge point of labor, but it's a very small part of the workforce. So what we have to figure out right now, if there is all this frustration and militancy, and and one thing I was going to say, um, and I didn't get to that yet, I do think there's a reason why unions, despite everything I've said today, are more popular than they've ever been, because people are trying to figure out how to organize their lives collectively. Um, they know that they don't stand much of a chance alone, yet most of their life is structured in such a way to encourage being alone, which is what why we have this problem with you know, we talk about the online problem. That's 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 structural throughout the society in some ways right now. It is it is sack of potatoizing us. Um but at your workplace, that is the one area of a lot of people's lives um, that you are necessarily social like and for some people it's like literally the only spot left like like how many people do you know that their primary social organization is their job like i it's it's scary but i know a lot of a lot of it now and also when you think about how much hours a lot of people uh um like devote to their to the work when they have it that's that's their primary like uh, that is their primary form of life so so it makes sense that people know that they need this and this is the one area where they haven't been totally ironically even though they are literally being commodified by being there um there is that they, they aren't commodified as consumer producers or any of that shit well um, let me uh
0: let me uh, stop you for a second there uh eric um put this comment up. What if you work on Uber on your phone and literally never see another human being? Real question. This is the future. We definitely don't talk uh, uh, enough, if at all, about the fact that much of what um, those uh, ride sharing companies and food delivery companies were doing was putting in not just clauses about what is an employee, but also no organization no union clauses so you have this massive workforce that uh doesn't have the ability to unionize that being said we do have another call and this is expensive david thank you for calling
3: yeah thank you man take care of y'all bye-bye appreciate it
0: So, Varn, I know you've never been on a call-in, I think, but uh, there's a four-second delay. So, sometimes when someone says something, they're not going to hear you for four seconds. Pascal, before I bring in the next call, do you have anything you want to add to that uh, very, what I thought, very good exchange?
1: I thought it was a very good exchange as well. Uh, I'm Facebook friends with David Eppich, and I really appreciate his commentary. Uh, I really uh, f- I like the shots he took some shots at Doug Henwood I was like wow damn It's because a guy wears a pink shirt and he went to Yale he can't have yeah man the pink co-
0: shirts was rough
1: correct <laughs> opinions about labor I mean Doug's been writing about I mean he's been writing about these issues for a while man I understand yeah. the the criticism but the question I wanted to ask about his position is that you know he made a lot of statements uh du- well you know Epish was making a lot of statements based on his Actual real-world experience dealing with people young people in the workforces and dealing dealing with the trenches and One of the things he said is that I don't think we've seen a generation Who was more interested in collective struggle or class struggle than the current young right now and I you know I was a little I find that a little dubious because I'm involved in some organizations where I deal with young people. And I think that 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 is not a general statement. It's a class specific statement, because when you particularly look at college educated young people, particularly college educated, young uh, black folk, particularly black males, they're very much into entrepreneurship. They're very much into Bitcoin. They're very much into uh, capitalism. And if they are not interested in unions, they're also uh, very much into a lot of this men's right activism stuff. And I find it hard to believe that the consequences and the problems we're seeing with a lot of young men, particularly with the rise of this incel phenomenon, indicates that they are leaning to some kind of collectivist, left collectivist union movement kind of you know ideology and i think many of them actually are developing more reactionary types of thinking and I that might be a class project but i'm not as convinced in the whole you know generation z will save us now because they're ready to uh carry the uh the hammer and sickle into the next millennium uh argument as much that Dave was, 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 uh, passing off. You know, I think that Vaughn who's a teacher can speak to this more than anyone else. Well, th- to be fair, Dave is also a teacher. Uh,
2: we're, we're, we are distant union brothers. Um, that's how we know each other kind of also through left media. But, um, I think it's actually very, very depending on where you're at. Um, and it's, it is, it is, classed and in in cities but one of the things i'll push i'll push back on a little bit um is that the the current generation kind of feels like it's going to be in hustle mode um so there so there's a i think in a lot of people there's a double movement one towards more wanting more collective action etc wanting more collectivization and I, i i actually we could talk about black young men i get really uncomfortable talking about like specific sub-demographics and generalizations but i actually think there are some things going on there that are specific um but i also think there's this feeling like there is no collective work for them they're gonna all be instagram influencers and well also um, too
0: would you guys agree sorry to to interrupt you again but you 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 talked long enough i can
2: you. Yeah, you can interrupt my. <laughs> sure
0: but but all jokes aside, there's something you know. Ben and I were talking about this I think the other night that a lot of the public spaces are gone. You know, malls oh, yeah, are gone. Totally gone. There's a lot of distance learning now in the in this COVID era, this current COVID era. um So really
2: my job, and it doesn't work very well, but that's a whole nother thing,
0: right? And co- so collective thinking is kind of just gone anyway, because anything that we want that we would have to go to a, a public space and meet people at is gone. I can get in, a, in an Uber and get to where I wanna go opposed to getting on a, a subway train or or a bus. Um, and sometimes it's cheaper than a subway train or a bus depending on what city you're in. Um, like I said, the, the meet space of a shopping center even if you're not buying anything that's definitely where I met people that didn't go to my school and uh, and made friends even even going to the record store um again to just hang out and see what's new all that stuff is gone so meet space for people I think is just a dead scene so of can course I, I,
1: yeah, I want to add to that yeah. I have a friend to 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 echo what you're saying mm-hmm. For those people who practice law or still practice law, particularly if you're in a private practice, most of us remember a time that when you wanted to file a case and you Mm -hmm. had to service a client, you actually had to go to the courthouse, Mm -hmm. go to the clerk of court, make three copies. The clerk would stamp the documents. If you wanted to see your clients, you had to come to your office. Some of us had virtual offices. Some of us had physical offices, all of that stuff. If you had to do closings, you had to have people come to the office, sign all the documents. You had to have FedEx pick up the documents. I have several friends of mine who are private practitioners right now practicing law. Everything is digital. Everything is virtual. You don't go to court. You file all of your documents from your office. I have a friend of mine who's an attorney. A whole office is from her house. Files all the documents online. Sees all the clients through Zoom. Doesn't deal with anyone. Does all of the gets all of the billables and payments through uh, Cash App, uh, uh, Zelle, or everything else. Interacts with no one. Profit margin is higher than it's ever been before and completely isolated from dealing with anyone. It only has to go to court if they're actually going to trial. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Someone said that that was a boomer take, and I will add that everyone on the screen is not a boomer. So if you want to be funny, I'm sure there's some younger show you can watch and then you can say that and that would be funny but i really don't find that funny and if you think that the atomization of people is cool then i don't know what you are pushing for the boomer energy is off the charts now well look i don't know who you are and you're probably a much younger person and maybe you should go uh go online and debate someone.
2: That sounds like something you could do. You could
0: play a video game or uh what do you young people do now? You can text on your cell- don't
2: get mad at trolls, shoot them.
0: No, I just I fucking I hate that
2: shit. <laughs> like-
0: it's a show of the passion. It's like everyone on this no one on the screen is like seventy-five. It's like you're well, so old.
1: interesting, what's what's to, to prove your point, Jason, is that if you read the actual statistics on increases in depression, yeah. feelings of isolation. Yeah senses of loneliness rates of suicide overall death and mortality of americans is off the charts
0: well according well you're just an old man yelling at clouds you need to get
2: it yeah, so I, I'm gonna pick up Anton Jaeger because Anton Jaeger is clearly a millennial, so um, you guys can yell at him uh, for the boomer take. But what he actually pointed out is is absolutely true that the workplaces are ironated, that social the social and collective spaces, even on the right, have been in massive decline. They're in decline because they're hard to fiscally support. Um, the reason why they're hard to fiscally support is that that's infrastructure has been effectively automated, which is actually if you want to get to why I don't talk about the PMC all that much is because I think the P and the M and the C are separating um, because the, the P is automatable and the M is a tool of capitalist control. And so their interests are dividing. So I actually do think we need to talk about professionals as separately from managers, but um, and the reason why is the exact reason you're saying, mm-hmm. um, but that affects young people in ways. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really torn because again, we, we could talk about focusing on the local. Uh, and on one hand, you have to, on the other hand, if you're not looking at the actual aggregate numbers and the stats and whatnot, and really parsing them, um, you, you could be taking your own activity uh, as a, Which is, which you will, because you're also, in so much that you're not alienated, you're not alienated with people like you in situations like you, and extrapolating that to the rest of the world. And that might profoundly mislead you as to what is actually going on. And this is also true. I mean, it's not just true for leftists. Uh, How many, like, I have very religious friends. How many of them... Feel like you know everyone is in some evangelical church. Well, objectively speaking, the the Protestants are are church attendance has dropped to like twenty percent, and they're a smaller part of the population in in, in the United States than they've ever been. Um, and the the places where they're not are actually places of color, which totally is not what people have in their minds. Um, and. And Mormons. I actually live in one of the places where it's not quite as true as it is in other places of of the country. So when people talk about boomer takes, I used to get this when I talked about executive function and social media. Because what it is, is that's narcissism. You don't want people telling you that your way of life is actually destructive to you because you don't know anything else. Like, and I'm sorry, but grow the ever-loving fuck up. Like, that's and and you know in the past i might be worried about like young people taking me but i've seen the current young people um <laughs> let's
0: let's there's know. there's some there's some people calling and let's uh take these phone calls because remember this cost me by the second
2: all right and i don't know how to
0: figure this out because it's all this newfangled technology so i need a young person to come in here and show me how to do it so let's take this phone call if i can figure it out caller am was- i on Caller, what's your name and where you calling from?
5: Uh, yeah, this is Virtuoso. Uh, I've been on the chat for uh, some time now, and um, I just want to say, go on your cooking, man. <laughs> All right, thanks. Um, so yeah, the, let me let me give my uh, anecdotal take about the subject matter you're talking about. Um, I was a service worker um, as a janitor for six years, um, and my union um, that represented me was a local 32BJ in New York City. I often call them uh, 32 blowjobs because they suck off my union juice dry. And I just want to know that why, how is it that in the most worker, I mean, the most union-friendly city in the world, right, <laughs> allows contractors, right, to give temporary workers a short-term like job and think that they're going to cover like, you are, are going to cover like these insurance uh, mail that I be getting, you know, trying to pay into a pension, and that they don't respect my ability to uh, keep a job. So I, I find it disheartening that you have like a union leadership that talks about hope and change for the working class, but yet is doing things at the behest of the you know of the contract of the employers by
2: gatekeeping yeah. membership. I- yes, you're absolutely right, uh, Virtuoso. And I, I actually want to uh, tell you uh, a problem that I observed. A couple years ago, there was a controversy in the Teamsters Union because the Teamsters got a, a, a pretty sweet deal uh, for, their, for their workers um, uh, in, in dealing with the UPS. However, how they got that deal was by putting a clause in allowing for non-union, non-UPS workers to do a lot of the emergency uh, backstop. So what what you see is a lot of the sectional leadership has incentives to sell out people who are not totally in the union or not completely in the union who aren't the uh, regular form of dues because they don't feel like they're representing them. Um, but in doing so, they're actually doing things that are undercutting their own workers' ability in the long run, but it gets the contract closed and they can claim a victory. And when you hire outside of that, when you're one of the things that, like, you know, David said he didn't expect this out of union leadership, and he's right not to. Uh, union leadership is often trained in in uh, business schools. Like a lot of the a lot of like the the union uh, the, the tracks into union organizing is through the business schools. And in, in some ways, uh-huh. leadership is an adjunct to HR. Um, and uh-huh. and if we don't deal with that when we're dealing with the with the union movement, we are setting people up to to to, to, to fail. Um, and there is very little mm-hmm. incentive for leadership to to do anything about that. Now union members actually probably do have some solidarity with you, but that's not the structure, and unfortunately, this is not unique to the United States. This one's not one we can blame on Taft Hartley or our unique working laws. We see this across the world. What what do we see in Europe? Well, Europe, highly unionized sectors in Europe's had good pay, good representation, good relative. They still have like in some ways lower lower purchasing power than people in the states, but good relative to historical norms. Um, and 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 in and in like the Nordic countries, without a minimum wage, they can command pretty close to a living wage, et cetera. Um, but where is all this excess labor coming from that they're still using to keep costs down and to slow down quote inflationary pressures and stuff? Well, that's what the workers' programs are for. That's what foreign labor is for. That's what getting all those Muslim immigrants, which also triggers an, a xenophobic backlash, is for, because it's used to Fight inflationary pressures, keep keep the pressures off of the union. And we see this also in and um uh this is why things have gotten so bad for people in the UK. I mean, the UK right now has double the poverty rate of the United States, all right. And the reason why it's really hitting people in the UK directly is they were outsourcing this by leveraging the purchasing power difference between uh, mostly Slavic workers who got paid, who, who sent the money back home in euros versus the difference in the pound. And they were able to use this to both suppress, but also hide, um, their wage suppression. And when that, when that went away, you had a, like even more than everybody else, they had their inflationary pressures were higher. So there's been a, a real incentive for leadership to sell people like you out. That's a fact. And mm-hmm. and if we as socialists right. don't talk so, about that, what so we're doing? The, yeah. the union leadership is corporatized; it's not radicalized. The union leadership has been corporatized since the 1960s. Yes, not in every field, uh, but in the yep. fields where it wasn't corporatized, it actually tended to be be in complicated ways. Actually, even encouraged by the government to deal with organized crime, uh, which is not a myth. Uh, that but it's a myth when it started. It started really in the in the 70s, and that was. Uh, the reasons for that are complicated. There are books on it, and I will uh, send that to Jason sometime so uh, he can look it up. I, I can't remember off the top of my head right now. I don't have the resources on me, but I will. Uh, if you want to like reach out to my show, you'll find my email and send it to me. I'll send you that book later. Um, but there's there's a lot of stuff we have to deal with with that. and And I've seen comments in the chat about this, and they're absolutely right the the labor organizational trend right now is towards further and further atomization it's that is what we're trying to do um the reducing of office mm-hmm. spaces the reducing of industrial spaces making those spaces uh and it's very hard to organize in that and so while there might be a will out there i i, I when we talk about will amongst generations like i think you know i think david's telling the truth I also think Pascal is telling the truth. We see different things at different places and different times. Um, the right. the issue is that where can they get organized in ways that are effective? And increasingly people are having to pin on things like tenants unions and whatnot. And I'm not shitting on tenant unions, they're great community organizations, they'll help you out, but they're not this, they don't have the same stoppage power that labor unions do labor unions can stop the part of the beast. Tenant unions can't. And that is a fundamental difference. And, and, um, I think, uh, a lot of the discourse around unions right now just isn't being open and honest about this. Now I'm going to shut up cause I know this costs money. So, yeah,
5: <laughs> I mean, the Kellogg strike was, was an example of that. Like, uh, the, the, the contrast was getting smaller and then the union ship was getting smaller, uh, 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 if
0: I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Well, Virgil, thank you so much for your call. Anytime Dave, peace. Yeah. Peace, brother. And see, this would have been so much smoother had MT not been playing Ferris Bueller and uh, hanging out. <laughs> From now on, I'm only referencing movies from the 80s because I'm old. Now, we have a call from my area, the Bay Area. Let's take this call. Caller, what's your name and where you calling from?
3: Hi, my name's uh, Robert. I'm from uh, California. So uh, my question is, is that the way the com- economy is organized right now, would it really be possible for to have good unions in sectors like Starbucks and uh, Amazon and just more public-facing service sector jobs, if that's really a feasible thing?
0: You saying nationalized Starbucks and Amazon or unions and Starbucks and Amazon?
3: Union.
2: Oh. Okay. Like um, Good.
3: Appropriate pay for where you live. Jobs in
2: those sectors. Okay. Um, I'm going to I'm going to bracket out Amazon because Amazon actually is a place that would make sense. Those factories are high density with employment. Uh, you're representing a lot of workers at a time. If you get a good contract and they can actually shut uh, transportation down. So if you can't move the industrial heart, you can shut down the veins, right? Um, so they're in a much better uh, position. However, um, the, we still don't have that many Amazon United shops yet, and those contracts are not completely worked out. So we don't really know. Um, so there, strategically, it's an easier battle, Um And its leadership is younger and they're independent. Um, uh, There's a whole lot tied into that. That's good. But it it is still yet to be seen what we're going to see there. Um, With Starbucks unions, it's much harder. Now, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter because leadership is clearly fucking scared. But they can also use it to drive sales depending on how they spin it. And they can do both. Like they can be fighting the union and... And actually also talking up their progressive values to get people in, you know, uh, ethics in our, in our consumer society is a, is a uh, illusionary paid for luxury item, right? Like, think about like, like organic foods, fucking expensive. Um, And, you know, the, the, we, we always associate that with like really obnoxious, uh, fairly high wealth people until you get to the true brackets, because it has it is commodified. The, the ability to have ethics is commodified. Um, to make ethical consumer choices is, is commodified. So that can be played off by management just as easily as, while they're simultaneously suppressing. The, the structure, however, makes it harder. Um, there are legal structural problems, and there are, and, and we all know we're not going to do anything about the legal structural problems, because uh, the Republicans now have Congress, that's over and we didn't do much about it during biden's administration except for getting a better mcrb board so getting better people appointed to that board um the shops are small so in a a citywide team you might have 400 people but some of those contracts are going to be like for a shop which will mean the contracts negotiated for a shop um if you know how the burger world uh, and, and Portland went, which was a very small boutique labor organization in Portland, it almost took a decade for those for those workers to get a contract, and they had very unattractive clauses, which also meant that a lot of the workers who started the unionization movement in Burger World uh, weren't there for when it ended. All right? And they can drag out these contracts a long time. Um, so... Okay. So the answer to your question is the odds, I'm not going to say no, but the odds are not good at all. Um, And that's because... What I've seen is all the the unionization that isn't happening
3: or areas that have been union and then gone non-union, they face the public or that the consumer has to basically pay for what they're getting. So... There's no way to, like, spread the cost out. Like, for instance, houses. All residential housing in California, or most of it, used to be union. None of it's union now. Solar industry. They are a newer thing. It's never been union. So it seems like that's a a real problem, and I don't know what you would do about it.
2: Yeah, I, I... I... So... This is one second
0: before you answer that, Brian. One second, Robert. Thank you very so much for your call. Appreciate you, brother. Thank,
3: thank you. You want to answer that, Dave? yeah
2: Yeah. Um, so that's that's the long term trend that's worrying. Is that in areas where there's still new business, new businesses have a much lower chance of being unionized. There is some advantages to that. Uh, in that, that you're not going to deal with the same sclerotic uh, union leadership when you do have a union push, like we see with Amazon United. And Amazon really is different than most of these other uh, scenarios. But um, there's a reason why it happened in New York and not Alabama. Like, like there's a lot more stuff that can be done. And even, but Amazon can do, they're like move stuff around easily and punish municipalities and break up things totally within the bounds of the law in most of the continental U.S. New York, New, you know, New York, even even uh, conservative Democrats um, will make sense to union stuff. They were they were better, for example, in the railroad strike, even though, you know, um, you wouldn't expect it from the rest of their policies. Uh, but then you run into the problem that we were just mentioning before. And that problem is that the unions themselves have reasons to deal with temporary workers to get better, quicker deals with their, um, uh, with their uh, uh, management also, so they don't have to trust their investment funds. I mean, that's, that's, that's also part of what's going on there. I mean, they're not striking because they don't want to touch the strike fund because not only is some of that illiquid, but, they're making money off of making money. Um, and so if they start using it, um, they might increase their dues and their the union organization might be more viable, but they might actually be risking their financial incentives, and that's a really perverse incentive system. Um, now that's that varies from union to union. We we can't over-generalize here, but um if one looks up this report and this is from a this is from a leftist source, this is not a right-wing report. Labor's fortress of finance by Radish Research. Uh, it it becomes very clear what the incentive structures are for a lot of these established unions, and then um, the unestablished unions have much higher hurdles to to clear. Um, they got to get a union authorization vote. They got to get through the NTLB board. They got to get a contract with and making sure that contract doesn't have enough Skype clause because they have enough strike clause. They're pre- it's pretty much dead in the water. Um, Now, this is where Biden's NCLB matters if you're not in the public sector. Um, But how long do you think that that's going to happen? That's going to stay good? Like, it takes, it it doesn't even take a Republican to change that. I mean, um, if you have a Democrat that thinks that they can make headway in entrepreneurial places of color, they're going to cut that too. So it's, there is not a whole lot of that's a very precarious method to try to secure like a good turnover for these new unions um it's a hard hard road road to hoe and i think you know we can come down on whether or not we should be positive because but i personally i'm just going to say this personally as a, as a worker, as a person, as an activist, I get mad when people make things rosier than they are because it makes me not know how hard I'm going to have to fight. And this is a much harder fight than I think a lot of people realize. Now, if you're underground and you're, you're dealing with people and you're in a union and, and you have high union density, um, it's, maybe you, you it, maybe it'll feel very different for you. And And I think that's legitimate. But even, you know, you talk about David, David and I seem like we have massive disagreements, but 90% of everything we talk about, we agree on. His his take basically is we need to look at where the energy is and capitalize that energy. And my take is like, but in the broad spectrum of things, the energy is in very particular places. They're doing very particular things. And not A, not every sector can even do those things. And B, um, the sectors that can more often than not aren't. It is like the, the, you know, um, the, the twin cities school unions and the Chicago school unions are exceptions to the general rule, even in how their charter is structured. And most people in a union never fucking see their charter. They don't know how their union works. Like, um, and, and I mean, for a great majority of people, like, like, uh, like, I ask even most union members, like, what do you think I do as a rep? They have no idea. Like, they know I neg- they know that I vote on the contract and that I might be on the negotiation team if we're lucky. And that's all they know. Some of them, I, I literally have teachers who did not know they were under contract because we don't sign a contract every year. And in fact, there's some laws in a lot of Western states that we're held to our contract if, we, if it's even not negotiated on. So we can't quit our job, even if we don't have a contract without penalty. Now, that's a crazy thing for the union to accept, but it did. Um, and that means that for a lot of people... They don't even know what we're doing for them in terms of contract and the union itself. When I say, okay, well, let's talk about the insurance protections and stuff that we offer. They need protection. I will get tell from man from, from union staffers that that's too negative that I need to sell that. Like we give benefits and perks and magazine subscriptions. And I'm like, who cares? Who cares that we can be a better consumer? Now, not every union is like that. Uh, not every teacher's union is like that. Most, uh, most, even most ACLU unions like aren't like that. But that is a trend and it's a real trend for the professional unions. And you know why they're doing it for the for the from for the government unions is they want to be able to push back on politicians as a lobbying force because like a, a, with public sector unions, we are our boss is literally the state government. Like that's who our boss is. Um, so, even in places where unionization is easier, and you think about a school, a school is a lot more like a factory in the way that it's set up than, like, say, a, a retail shop. Um, but even there, um, there are there are strange incentives for what we have to do, and they affect a lot of what leadership does in ways that plays down the collective nature of what we're doing in some areas. And unfortunately, from my experience. That is true in more states than not. Um, the successful unions don't do that, but most people aren't in them. And in the places where the unions, ironically, are the most successful—New York and California—they have the—they actually have really bad incentives too, because they're kind of like a, a you know, a of government in some ways. Um, and so they also don't really have that many incentives, even though. As we see in California, California's union density is really getting hit um, because of new industries and stuff like that, and and disruption, um, and that's and since it and since it frankly doesn't affect the Democrats much there, uh, they don't have the same incentives to care. Um, you know, the Democrats' primary donor bases are are still capital I mean labor gives them a lot of money that's that, that's true but I want to clear up one misconception your dues if, as a union member ne- never legally go towards lobbying that's but it, you know that's that's uh, that's actually a myth but most of the union's resources that are not tied into their own operation are investments do go into lobbying so they have all these packs of which they're constantly begging us to give money to because because in in our field, our boss is a is literally, you know, a political organ. Um, so all that's to say is uh, it's going to be real hard and it's harder even in places that it seems like it's easier <laughs> than people realize. Because like, for example, I've been saying like I've been saying today, more union members aren't covered by the National Labor Relation Act than are like that. Like so even if there is a great NCLB board, it actually affects um you know, if, if only 10% of people in unions are in unions and most of them are in public sector unions, uh, then that means that, like, probably it's you're more looking to, like, 4% of the people who are in unions that are affected by the NCLB board. That may be a little bit too low. I'm doing the math on the top of my head, but it's a very small number. Um, it's, like, I don't know, uh, an order of, of magnitude more than, say, the DSA is in size, but that's still in a, in a country... You know, four percent is is not a massive movement. You you when you talk about mass or mass movements, you need something like thirty three percent of the population for it to really really have an effect.
0: Well, let's uh, we have to move on because we have a few more calls before we have to end the show. Thank you very much, caller. Um, and Derek will ask you to uh, keep your answers brief. Okay. <laughs> This next caller is someone that we all know in real life. Caller, what is your name and what do you do for TIR?
6: Good morning. Well, actually, shit, it's good afternoon by now. Hell, this is a long going show. Hey, everybody, this is Jeremy. Um, Say, I don't know, chief stone projectionist, (laughs) and a occasional uh, live show. This
0: is Jeremy Salmon. We met him in uh, met him in L.A.
6: Hey, what up? Calling from Portland, Oregon.
0: Sorry to hear about that.
6: Uh, yeah, real quick. Uh, well, aside, well, quick note: I just drove past a facility tagged a building with abolished bedtime." So that's uh, Portland, Oregon, for you. Anyway, um, two quick questions. Well, one quick question, one not so quick, but the but the first one was uh, about because uh, Derek, you've been talking about this. Uh, especially lately a lot, but in terms of, I guess, like uh, less safety media coverage, who actually is worthwhile following on this? Like, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Henwood, and occasionally in, in these times they hired Amno as their labor reporter, and he's pretty decent, I hope, because I will follow his stuff from Gawker. So I'm kind of curious, who out there is, report, not just at the, the raw stats, on the BLS and everything, but who's actually covering this and like, kind of contextualizing it for folks. Uh, and the second question, which is, not, I don't mean, not might even be a colder show, but um, this is something that was kind of percolating, especially got touched on in the first half an hour of the show today, uh, is the, the kind of um, some of the problems that we are seeing with a lot of the uh, more, I don't know, activist kind of disconnection from street movements. Uh, the, I don't want to say this, it's kind of like the view of like a lot of like comfortable, mostly white but not entirely white of like especially liberal it, who kind of like totemizes, you know, totemizes and fetishizes uh, marginalized communities, especially black folks, as kind of like this inherently moral redeemer who, you know, has been, you know, will be the progressive agent that'll save us all. Uh, and like your previous guest, uh, Luis Louis C. Shelley wrote about this in her book too, about this kind of like weird disconnect, but also kind of like I don't know, like uh, like moral understanding of you know like black folks in America as like originating, like still being stuck in like 1963. And I'm kind of curious is how much of all this stuff seems to come out that, uh, especially the uh, like you know like the list of the women that doesn't really apply when say your police chief is former Oakland and Portland Police Chief Daniel Outlaw, who I believe is now the chief in Philly and uh, doing the same things there that she did in those other cities. So uh, i got two questions. Take whatever you want. Uh, thanks. Uh, a lot of time, listener. Um, uh, Baba Booey, Baba Booey, Bobby Booey, big fan, big fan, Howard.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much, for me. Oh Thank you very much. And, and on that note, we're going to go ahead and uh, close the phone Thank you, everybody, that called. That was awesome. Um, Pascal and Derek, I'm sure you guys have something to say about that. Last call.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll tackle the first one. I'll get the second one, Pascal. Uh, uh, Hamilton Noland over at In These Times is actually excellent on this stuff. He's, he's pro-labor. He's, he's, he's more cheerleader than me, but he's actually reported um, on the – on the liberal leadership problems. He's been honest about the problems with the, with assuming the victories is just in becoming a union, but also what kind of contracts they're going to get. He's also pointed out that the congressional atmosphere has completely changed under the Biden administration because of the midterms. And that while everyone's super happy about the Senate not falling or whatever, that like uh, they still lost the house and the house is dysfunctional um, entirely, but that even when they, Did have the house. Most of labor, most of the labor agenda items did not go through. Um, So Hamilton Nolan over in these times, in these times in general, does a pretty good job. Um, Jacobin does report on this, but it's often hidden in articles. So like, if you follow the Jacobin labor beat, um, if you won't want to get totally depressed because I don't want people to only take the bad news in. Okay, my point is not to to black pill people. They should uh, read labor notes because it's going to talk about individual labor site struggle and organization. Um, Now labor notes has a don't ask, don't socialist policy. So take that as you will. Um, But uh, it, it is still a good source for like trying to figure out what contracts are being won, where people are selling people out at. You can get that from labor notes and a few other labor reporting outlets. Um, and so you should read those um henwood is good on the numbers i don't always entrust his interpretation of the numbers uh for example he wrote an article about the great resignation not happening in democratic states and then like bracketed out that it did happen in california which i'm like well so you're gonna skip the biggest democratic state you know like uh and stuff like that like um so but his numbers are usually sound i would sometimes question his interpretation of them um like you know that's where the pink shirt comes in i guess um the uh the other place i would say uh, guys you guys need to read the business press and you need to read it critically like like the business press often tells itself the truth and i say this over and over again but it doesn't say it in ways that left us understand because it doesn't speak our language and it's not meant to. But once you know how to read in between the lines, I tell people all the time, like, go read the Financial Times. Go listen to Patrick Boyle. Like, yes, they have they have pro-capitalist glosses. Ignore that part. Listen to the stats and the numbers and the actual political situations because they have power. They have less incentive to lie to themselves. All right? And that's important and important to understand. Um don't listen to how why explain what listen to their how and what don't listen to their why their why's bullshit but the how and what's important we often don't understand the how and what and then talk about a why before we even really understand what's happening um on the second part i'm going to defer to pascal
1: yeah the second part he was asking about how liberals usually dispatch a race to create the, the illusion of what harold cruz would say is the belief that Black people are always storming the barricades ready for revolution or the most progressive faction. What the biggest problem with that is that what that often does is that it gives people who are members of the Black political class cover to implement the more reactionary politics that is within the purview of the Democratic Party. A perfect example of that is Barack Obama. George W. Bush dropped bombs and drone people. Obama did more and got away with saying, I'm pretty good at killing people, which he literally said. Because people will believe, like, well, he's the first black president. He can't be as mercenary and murderous as a George W. Bush. Because people impute this kind of super kind of touchy-feely humanity on melanated skin, and if somehow it's not, it doesn't have the the uh, the ability to be as driven by greed, you know, desire, power, envy, all those other things, which is ridiculous. It's basically racist because you're denying. Black and brown, or other people, or women, or gay people, the actual agency of any other human being to do not only good, but actually bad. And I think one of the worst examples of this whole kind of like trust women is like, would you really want to trust Hillary Clinton in Libya? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> you have to listen to them. That's the only way the conversation is going to change. And then everything changes because they have feelings and you're ignoring their feelings.
2: You know, I, I would I would take it a lot more seriously if we were like talking about trusting working class women. But I always trust women who seems to be trusting somebody who's powerful or married to someone powerful. Like, yeah, like like that. Like, and even then, like even you know, I, I would say don't completely trust anybody. But we're often talking to the like we're we're, we're talking to the wrong people.
0: And Pascal, you just mansplained to women by doing that.
1: Well, I don't. I do believe you should trust. You should trust people based on if they desire worthy of your trust, not right. because of their identity.
2: 100%. And that, that's also true for working class people, by the way. It's not like, you know, working, I, they, there is a socialist adjacent to this where like working class people do nothing wrong and they have no social pathologies, Yeah, um, which I think is like absurd. Um, and I have personal reasons for thinking that, like it touches my family. Intercising um, the poor. Yeah, I fucking hate that shit. Like, it's it's awful. Like, uh, poverty is destructive and bad, and it doesn't do good stuff for you morally. Um, The one thing I will say that poverty tends to incentivize is caring about people because you need them because they're the only thing you got. But um, even that, you can do that in good or destructive ways. I mean, there's nothing inherently moral about any of that, or even necessarily good politically. Um, it's just you have slightly better incentives to be, po- you know, politically viable, but also like I guess it's with women. I just think, when, you know, it's it, it's it is actually in some ways very similar to what we do when we imagine like black excellence, which is the black bourgeoisie. I mean, uh, you hear all this talk about white feminism and I'm like, well, but let's be honest, that's elite feminism. It's not just white. We're using white as proxy for elite. But as if like like. You know, poor blue haired women in New York are are like ex wives in in Idaho are not who you're talking about when you talk about that. They're not in that conversation at all.
0: But isn't that part of that whole project, which, you know, listen to these voices that are are silenced. Do the voices then start playing to the crowd? Because, oh, what do you want to hear? Oh, you really like it when I tell you about how hard my life is. I'm going to talk it up more because, you don't you're never going to prove it so yeah you know my mom my mom sold me when i was five and i lived this horrible life you have to listen to my voice
2: yeah i think i mean there's look i mean like we could do poverty porn here if we wanted to i mean i think two of us have even been homeless Mm -hmm. but like i'm also i'm not a poor worker anymore Like uh like I'm not gonna lie. I'm 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 a I am in I'm a labor aristocrat at best. Like I know what I am. Um I know it because I also know what being a poor worker looks like. Like I remember it, it sucks. I you know, like no one really wants to be that. And people think that's an American pathology, it's not, it's all over the world. Um (laughs) like person here that was hella fired up about it. Yeah, um uh I mean, it's probably worse in America in some ways. And I, there's probably like, there's probably reasons for that having to do with settlerism and land and, and the way that. But um, it, I've seen it everywhere on Earth. Like no one like like I will say this, for example, there's a lot in, in younger people. There's a lot there's no longer the same shame in being working class. But I can tell you weirdly that the only time i meet people who brag about being working class are usually amongst leftists who are in some of the most quote privileged unquote sectors of the working class and are are they bring up like my grandfather was a union worker and i'm like but your mom is like a, a, a on the donor of trustees at a hospital like don't don't <laughs> pretend anymore and and like yeah half your family is from the working class but the other half married up so, like, and I say this because it's a sociological phenomenon. When I'm around leftists, I wear, I wear my working classness as a badge of pride, right? But it's taken me years, years and years and years to be comfortable speaking anything like the way I spoke as a kid. Because I associate it with social pathology, with poverty, with being fucking stupid and being disrespected and being seen as a big fat useless waste of time and so like sounding smart was a weapon that i learned and until i realized in my late 30s after i had been a marxist for several years that that was a kind of class coding shit that i was doing i would not you know i spoke incredibly properly um and I still don't have my natural accent, like, except when I say water. And I'm kind of ashamed of it, but that's just because that's my natural you gotta accent.
0: You got to pull it out of him. If we yeah. hang out with Derek long enough, I'll, I'll, that didn't sound right. We'll yeah, accent.
2: well, you got me. <laughs> you may have given me some substances that I don't normally take, and, and, uh, not you actually, but okay. somebody was hanging out with us gave you us know, some substances I don't normally take in California, and you've probably heard that Southern accent by the end of the night. But. Southern working class accent, but it. Yeah. But I mean, I think I think there's a lot of this where we use the symbol of a thing to hide what's actually going on. It's really easy with with race because that's what america thinks its primary sin is and in many ways sure i mean that's what makes it worse than a lot of the other capitalist countries but it doesn't mean that everybody else isn't awful like
1: so yeah anyway I'm,
2: it also
0: enables things like wilderson's afro pessimism right like you know his I wonder uh, if frank
1: Wilderson would want to be an algerian in paris
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Ooh. And on that note, <laughs> I'm not touching that. <laughs>
2: Goodbye.
0: And then Pascal's still not smiling. I am smiling. <laughs> I mean, what do you think about that, Pascal, before we take off?
1: There's a higher rate of incarceration amongst Algerians in Paris than there are black people in the United States.
0: But, but. Black people are the bottom of the totem pole of the world.
1: Yeah, anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, So you don't think Wilderson li- li- listens to Algerians?
1: No, I just think that I, I think Wilson has, you know, Wilson is a, is a faculty brat whose father was an academic, who has people in his family who read Hollywood TV shows. basically he's traveled all over the world you know went to dartmouth he's a member of my fraternity petit bourgeois negro who's fronting like you know woe is me some buy my book let me tell you how painful racism is
0: but don't you feel that that happens when it's like we have to listen to these voices
1: yes that's why i think standpoint epistemology is a bunch of crap
0: well on that note uh... none no one here will ever be speaking at a university
1: <laughs> <laughs> we we've already spoken at universities
0: i'm speaking yeah. at one in two weeks i'll be speaking at a uc urban
2: there you go so to say i i did a poetry tour at universities so <laughs> <laughs> i mean i might be canceled now
1: <laughs>
0: and pascal and i spoke at, uh, at oxford uh so yeah that was pretty cool Yep. Pascal also spoke at UC
1: Irvine. I did. I taught a class. That was some stressful shit. He
0: was uh, going to battle rap Frank Wilderson. That's literally what he was doing. He It's like Highlander. There could only be one. That didn't happen. Well, thank you, guys. This show has gone on for three hours. This is a part of what we do here at This Is Revolution. We try to show you what... Tuesday and Thursday is like if you have the ability to watch it. I know a lot of people live across the pond and due to time zones, can't watch the live show. But if you are in a place where you can't watch the live show, this is what we do in the champagne room. We open up phone lines. We have discussions. Maybe we don't answer questions as in-depthly and as long as Derek Martin. But we do have a good time as we had such a good time. We were doing like karaoke we came right on the show doing karaoke on thursday and that's why pascal's looking like this because all of his laughs came out because of mt's insult of me thursday and i think we still have it let's see oh is this it
1: Yeah, Crouching Tiger Hitting Blackness had me. <laughs> I was done. Where'd you get that fucking shirt? <laughs> oh,
0: I don't know, dude. Some where did I get the shirt? I, get? I think I got that shirt for their first New York thing we did for the sublation.
2: Okay. <laughs> because you look like Black Hunter ass Thompson in that. <laughs> I'm
0: sober, Hunter S. Thompson. That's what I am. I'm Hunter S. Thompson was black and sober.
2: So you would might still be alive.
0: Yeah. <laughs> There's All someone right. named Toto now in the chat, which I think is the greatest name ever. And if this was actually in the Champagne Room, I would totally leave the show with playing poor Georgie because I fucking love Toto. I say Toto then.
2: Toto now, Toto forever. You just did a George Wallace. Okay.
1: Or a Hakeem Jeffries. (laughs) (laughs) Israel today, Israel tomorrow, Israel forever.
2: Oh, the levels of wrong.
1: <laughs> he said that. He said that. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> Hakeem Jeffries. I know. Oh, so wow. he has a now. Muslim name. His his name Hakim is a Muslim name, and this fool has enough to be such a boot licking fan of the of the Zionist uh, lobby to be going out Israel today, Israel tomorrow. <laughs> Israel forever. I was like, man,
2: you Th- that's like meta
1: bootlickering cuz so it's also invoking George Wallace. Like, why the fuck would you do that? And he gives a speech on the house floor literally plagiarizing <laughs> allegedly from Jesse Jackson. Hey, and I believe that the Republican, you know, going to the outfit. I was like Jesse Jackson did that in the 80s,
0: dude. Also someone in the chat because you know we play this back for the audio, you can't see some of these things. There's someone in the chat that said their father gave them um Coffee creamer as a dessert. We're talking about poverty. Mm, damn it! Yeah. <laughs> what did Wu Tang mm. say? Life as a shorty shouldn't be so, should be so rough.
1: So rough.
2: <laughs> that is the official. That is the official. Like you're officially the poorest person. It, it, that's that's worse than government cheese. At least government <laughs> cheese is actually cheese. God, that's awful. I'm sorry.
1: Coffee creamer, because
2: all I can picture is a powdered coffee
0: creamer too. Like, not even... I mean, at least I ate
2: fried bologna and shit. Like.
0: Yeah, I know, just giving your kids coffee creamer and chopping up his lines. Oh, oh, poor kid, that poor, poor kid. Okay, we've done enough. Let's uh, let's be out. Thank you guys so much. Three hour show, so. Two hours of free. If you like what we do, please, 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 please hit that like button. Um, And we are out.